VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program on a Friday, June the 16th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. It's come on with an edition of Open Line, Don't You Know? So, if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So, I think I heard Brian Medor say, chance of thunderstorms here on the Avalon Peninsula today. Certainly, the weather looking out through at Kemmout Road and Kemmout Terrace. The conditions are present for that, but anywho, all right, let's check in on some under-16 basketball. We've been telling you about the fact that Canada at the FIBA Under-16 Women's America's Championship down in Mexico has a young lady from St. John's who played basketball at Gonzaga High School, Sarah Reed. She's on the team. They've gone through the round robin undefeated after a 92-45 victory over Argentina. Moving off to the quarterfinals, their opponent is yet to be determined, but get a load of this. Team Canada has outscored their opponents 251 to 122 through the round robin. So, dominant performance. We'll see what the playoffs bring. I saw a photo on social media yesterday from Brad Guju, of course, one of the finest curlers of all time. And maybe it's his uh, position as a winner, or maybe it's because he's got the money. But he's obviously in uh, Quebec for the Canadian Grand Prix this weekend. Competed, of course, on one of the greatest tracks in the world, that circuit Gilles Villeneuve. And, of course, Gilles' son, Jacques, the most recent Canadian world champion. Anyway, so he's posing for a picture, and the caption was, so this guy asked me to, for a photo. And he's posing with two-time world champion Fernando Alonso. That's pretty cool. So Alonso, of course, races for Aston Martin. Their owner, Lawrence Stroll, has said that he'd like to see both of his cars on the podium, both drivers and their cars on the podium this weekend, including his son Lance. Many people think that Lance has a ride because his dad owns the team. But anyway, on that front, curiously enough, it's on this date in history, 2019, that Fernando Alonso was actually a member of Team Toyota Gazoo Racing for, to win back-to-back 24 hours at Le Mans. So Gazoo posing with the champ, Fernando Alonso. Pretty cool stuff. That's all in the backyard last evening. Barbecue, and I could hear the music coming from the Iceberg Alley tent. Uh, apparently, it's got off to a raucous start, great start. So, if you've been there, want to tell us the, you know, the description of the new, bigger, better tent? We're happy to take it on. And inside the world of pop music or rock music, this is curious. It was on this date in 1967 that the three-day Monterey Pop Festival began, kicking off what they call the Summer of Love. And of course, California absolutely became the focal point of counterculture. So get a load of the, some of the uh, musicians and bands that played in this. So it was the first ever U.S. appearance by The Who, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and of course Woodstock takes place a couple years later. All the proceeds went to charity, so the artists said they'd play for free. They included The Birds, The Grateful Dead, Steve Miller Band, Canned Heat, Mamas and the Papas, Jefferson Airplane, Buffalo Springfield, Ravi Shankar, Simon Carfunkel, Otis Redding. <laughs> the population of California exploded on the heels of this uh, summer of Love and the whole culture culture movement, but the Monterey Pop Festival today, 1967. Speaking of icebergs, there's one thing for Iceberg Alley Performance Temp, but they just see this story in, me- in the media. So folks awoke to see someone who had set up camping on an iceberg. I mean, the warnings are always quite clear. They can flounder and flip and crack and roll at a moment's notice. But a couple of people took their kayak and went out to an iceberg and set up their tent and camped overnight. They haven't been seen since, but, you know, I saw the story. It gave me a bit of a giggle initially, and then I thought, wow, what a stupid thing to do. But anyway, Twilling Gate, the Bergs are in. 
I just talk a little population growth. So, you know, there's mixed reaction to some of the population numbers. It's not that long ago there was a campaign talking about what the upsides, economically speaking, would be if Canada had a population of 100 million. Remember when that was going around? So now there's a real-time real clock uh, by Stats Canada. You can go online and see it for yourself, called the population clock, obviously. And at some point this afternoon, around 4.30 island time, the population of the country is forecasted to grow to over 40 million people. It was back in 1997 that the population topped 30 million. Given the current trends and the pace of growth, it could be some 50 million people living in the country as of 2043, which comes with a variety of different issues. We know that in this province, the population grew last year uh, by 2%, which does indeed bring good and bad with it. But let's just think about how we get here. So the per current trend for population growth in the country is 2.7%. It's the highest annual growth since 1957. And of course, a lot of that, the post-war baby boom. 96% of the growth last year, which was over 1 million people that moved to Canada, nine, pardon me, or the growth in Canada, 96% for international immigration. Even if we talk about the need to try to catch up on the housing front, we need to build more homes in the next 10 years than we've built in the last 50. So that's a whopping big obstacle for governments to try to figure out. On top of that, even if there was a concerted effort at the municipal level, provincial level, federal level, we don't even have the companies and the skilled tradespeople to accommodate such expansion in the housing market. I'm trying to figure out this thing that I read from Auckland, New Zealand. I saw someone on Twitter retweet it. I only saw it this morning, so I haven't been able to wrap my mind around it. But let's talk about how we zone land and a concept known as upzoning to allow for more freedom for developers and governments to build different types of housing as opposed to the restrictions that are currently in place. So that keeps some investment dollars away. But just imagine, we'd have to build more homes in the next 10 years than we built in the last 50 and homes, I think, is probably the poor choice of words. Housing units, whether it be condominiums or apartment buildings or detached homes or whatever the case may be, but that catch-up seems to be virtually impossible. So how do we approach that issue? Then, of course, we'll get into some healthcare implications in a minute. But I read this story from Happy Valley Goose Bay, and I'm not really sure exactly what it means, but the town has asked for a pause on what was a proposed multi-purpose housing facility and a shelter. In Happy Valley Goose Bay, we know they have a housing problem. We know they absolutely have a shelter problem. So they're asking for more information from the province. So the mayor of Happy Valley Goose Bay is George Andrews. And Mr. Andrews, Mayor Andrews, if you have time this morning, we'd love to speak with you. So the province says they've been in constant communication with the town. And the town says, no, not so much. And because they don't have the information they need, the project is now on hold. I'd just be curious as to what sort of information they're looking for. Because, of course, the residents where the facility is going to be built need to be in the know for every reason you can imagine. But it's such a badly needed housing setup and shelter that Mayor Andrews would love to have you on the show this morning to talk about the issues regarding what information you don't have and how you'd use said information if it was on hand. So that's a big one. All right. In the world of population growth, too, is not only talk about immigration, but it's for people to be able to and want to have babies. Birth rates are on the decline around the entire world. And in this province, thankfully the province is going back to the well to, for their second attempt to try to improve fertility services. I had a couple of strange emails saying, you know, why is this a big deal? There's better places to spend our money. And at the same time, some of these people completely opposed to immigration. So it is important, in my personal opinion, and be, feel free to share yours on the show here this morning, 
But there's so many families who would like to have children but are unable to because of fertility reasons. And consequently, either A, they choose not to have children, B, they attempt to adopt, or C, they have to travel for fertility services around the country as far as Calgary. So going back with an RFP to see if there's an organization or business that are interested in establishing an in vitro fertilization clinic, we have the expertise on hand, I'm told. So this just stands to reason to make a lot of sense to me. So we've put, uh, we, the government's put forward some money here, $5,000 per cycle, up to three cycles for folks and families who want to travel for these in vitro fertilization procedures. According to the department itself, 121 people received that subsidy at least once. So if and when 121 families grew, there's absolutely upside here. If one of the hopes for our future, economically, socially, everything under the sun, is for young families to decide to make this province their home long term. Families are indeed looking for greener pastures up along. Some will decide to go for a variety of reasons, whether it be with access to childcare, or certain amenities, or a job, or access to in vitro fertilization, because you can only imagine some families that just have that want, the overwhelming want, to have a family. But if you have a fertility concern, then, of course, you need access to these types of services. So 121 people received the subsidy once. 45 available the second time. 11 went for it a third time. We've spent over $800,000 on that up to this moment in time. So when we talk population growth, we have to factor that in. And, of course, we talked about the pressures on housing. And we know there's pressures on health care. The travel agency nurses. I'm confused by this, I would freely admit. What's the origin of these travel agencies? You know, it's just really coming to pass and uh, part of the public conversation now in the last couple of years. So did we have shortages going years and decades back where some entrepreneurial spirit said, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to offer some nurses more money, try to fill the gaps, make some money and profit for myself. Nothing wrong with that. But it has created a real problem in the healthcare delivery for registered nurses in this province. There's absolutely no question. It comes with a cost. So the minister, I'm not so sure this was the words he chose on purpose, but he calls these travel agency nurses a necessary evil to fill the gaps in the hospitals. And if it wasn't for these travel agency nurses, many more hospitals will have diversions, emergency rooms or otherwise, or hospitals fully closing. But can you imagine working on the floor as a registered nurse, alongside, shoulder to shoulder, with a colleague who's a travel agency nurse making double or triple what you make? It'd be nice to see the numbers, but that cannot lead to anything but tense relations when it has to be a cohesive relationship on the floor with all healthcare professionals, including the registered nurses, on one wing or another. So here's some of the numbers that we've found. And you know, we can factor in the two or 300 nurses from India that should be b part of the equation by the end of this year. Here's some numbers coming from the government themselves. Western Health alone, 18.4 million. Is that why I'm reading this correctly? Uh, this from the Department of Health and Community Services. It would cost $18.4 million over 12 months for the travel nurses compared to $4.1 million in employing nurses that are already in the system. You can only imagine, when we hear from Yvette Coffey, who's the president of the Registered Nurses Union, they'll be talking about pay and work-life balance and all those things that we've heard repeatedly. But obviously, there's got to be some discussion here about the need for and the opportunity to move away from as much as possible from these travel agency nurses. I mean, that's an enormous cost. So a couple of ideas that I get taken to task on. But if I quit my job today, 
then I have a, a clause in my contract that says quite clearly that I cannot work in this industry for 12 months. All right? Non-compete. I don't know if it's fair, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway, is if you were trained in a nursing school, forget where you were trained. So you're a registered nurse working in the public system, and then you're wooed to go work for a travel agency, which must seem very attractive. You know, get to set your schedule a little bit more by yourself, make way more money. Why wouldn't you do it? But should we not have the registered nurses sign a non-compete so that it's not as simple as that? Because it's hurting the system, and it's costing us a ton of money. So I know people will think that's unfair, but I'm going to throw it out there for your consideration. And also in the world of nursing, and some 700 or 750 vacancies. The government has a bunch of incentives out there and recruiting internationally and what have you. But there's such a big ripple effect. Let's start with long-term care. And I wonder where the, what the status is of the long-term, long-term care and personal care home review. But the numbers of bed vacant in long-term care is pressuring the system all the way down through emergency rooms, all the way down through surgical backlogs. So some updates, maybe they're being a bit tight-lipped on this front because they are entertaining negotiations and collective bargaining with the Registered Nurses Union. But anyway, there you go. All right, uh, Dave, did you tell me we're going to speak with food first today? I kind of get lost in my mind here. So they've got a new report out about rethinking food security and considerations inside their 18 recommendations, I think it is, to government that maybe what would be a tectonic shift would be to do away with food banks entirely, to change the way we talk about food charity. Josh Smee is a wealth of information and really has his finger on this particular pulse. So we look forward to speaking with Josh this morning. But one thing they are talking about is that it's basically a cost issue, an affordability issue. So people either eating less or eating all grout or skipping meals in full, of course, comes with a huge price tag to the family and the individual. So they talk about increasing minimum wage or universal basic income or rejigging social programs. I'll let Josh provide the information in here. But if we're talking about cost, and the, su- the suggestion has long been, more money in your hands means the ability to afford better or more food. This will m- possibly come across as a very judgmental statement, but I'll put it out there. When government puts money in your hands, it could be for one purpose or another. You know, whether it be child tax benefit and or maybe money that is uh, strictly for affordability regarding food. Maybe utilizing gift cards, which has a sole purpose, to go to whatever grocery store and to get food. You know, not to say that everyone who maybe gets more money in their hand is going to do something, whether it be pay a bill or chip away at their line of credit or to make a hydro payment or a car payment or a cell phone payment or an insurance payment or to buy lotto tickets or drugs or booze. That's where we've got to be really targeted in how we use money. If it's intended to reduce your food insecurity, then we've got to hope that the money gets exactly where we intend it to be. So we'll take that on. And also the Competition Bureau of Canada, having a look at the grocery stores and their profits and talk about the potential for windfall taxes if indeed it's considered excessive profit. My question there, because food inflation is just crazy. It's about 8% at this moment in time. It peaked at around 13% is who gets to be the person or the entity that decides what constitutes excess profits. Profit's not a bad word. You know, the grocery store, the three majors, they say that their pricing plays little to no role. They say it's virtually impossible for their pricing, which is an exaggeration by the grocery store executives. But who gets to decide what's too much profit? That's a question that I think dogs people, when you talk about windfall taxes, whether it be on fossil fuel companies or grocery companies or anything, 
Who gets to make that decision? And very quickly, this story, just saw it this morning. You've heard me talk about the Atlantic Loop. And when the federal government first proposed it or discussed it, it really felt like a PR campaign, just a bit of marketing. So there was an initial price tag of some $5 billion. The government, even though they're the ones who announced it, said, well, we've got to do some more due diligence. That price tag has grown to somewhere in the neighborhood of $6.8 billion in overall capital cost. Now some background information from the federal government says that Canada is going to put $4.5 billion on the table to develop the Atlantic Loop. It could be of benefit to us, but of course, all we've talked about is Nova Scotia getting off coal, which is their primary source of generating electricity. And then it was, what's the hierarchy? Is it Hydro-Quebec just being the bully in the room and we all just follow their lead? Where's the upside to us? Does it have any impact on my rates? Will it mean the lead to the development of Gull or whatever the case may be? But apparently now the federal government will indeed be contributing about two-thirds of the forecasted cost of that Atlantic Loop, which is an interesting development. Very quickly. Good morning and congratulations to some of our, all our friends at NTV, specifically Tony Marie Wiseman, Tony Barrington are receiving uh, the RTDNA Lifetime Achievement Award. Fantastic stuff. Mark Dwyer also going to be recognized for excellence in sports reporting. Love seeing those folks around when we go to different media events or at the budget scrums or whatever the case may be. So congratulations, Tony Marie, Tony, and Mark. And also it's Father's Day weekend. Yeah, I don't know how big a deal people make of it, but uh, happy Father's Day to you dads out there, whoever plays the role of dad. I uh, hope you have yourself a great weekend and hopefully the opportunity to spend time with your family, your children in particular. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOSM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.vosm.com. When we come back, oh, there we go. Happy Valley Goose, Mayor, Goose Bay Mayor George Andrews is in the queue. Also, we've been talking about the street-level vacancy in the downtown core in St. John's. Downtown St. John's Executive Director Scott Clooney is also there, and then we're going to be speaking with you. The topic, up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board. A gentleman who I mentioned in the preamble is the mayor of Happy Valley Goose Bay. That's George Andrews. Good morning, Mayor Andrews. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. We know, and we've spoke before, whether it be the homeless problem and or the need for housing and the lack of the appropriate shelter. And then I guess through our initial conversation between yourself and the province, there was a proposed multi-purpose housing facility and shelter. Now seems to be on pause because you need more information. This is always a strange kind of question to ask, but I'm go- I'll do it anyway. What type of information do you need that you don't have? Well, first off, Patty, it's not us that need the uh, the information. So there hasn't been a project per brought to uh, from, to our council in terms of requesting permits to build. We have been invited as, as some other <clears throat> community groups and the uh, the action team uh, who've been involved in, uh, I guess, the, the end result of planning a purpose-built facility. So from a council perspective, uh, that's kind of some of the, the, I guess, confusion over the last couple of days. We still haven't been advised officially outside of on the media that the project has been uh, put on hold. So we entered into uh, discussions uh, around the table, and Newfoundland Labrador Housing and the provincial government came to us, and you know they said that this was what they were working towards. Uh, you know we've uh, we've had discussions with them, basic discussions. Um, the I guess announcement on and, and mixed messaging because on you know a local media uh, network last week was one thing, and community thought the project uh, was on hold, and then on Monday morning there was a an interview with uh, Minister Abbott and uh, some discussion around, 
you know, needed to consult with the community and, you know, they were putting things on hold. But at the same time, they were proceeding and hoped to come to the town uh, for a permit uh, in short order. Uh, I've, heard, I've been hearing that discussion uh, since February. So um, in February, we reached out to the province and we said, hey, listen, um, there's a lot of, you know, it's now been announced there's $30 million in the budget for a facility integrated housing uh, hub uh, in my community. Uh, we'd like to know first off the footprint and that kind of stuff and to get some information about the services that were going to be contained in the facility because a, a lot of rumors around town a lot of people you know uh, expressing what they think it's going to be there and what it's going to be and caused a lot of undue angst in, in, in the community we reached out we had that meeting um, we were basically told that there is no uh, concrete planning planning or any other further further development in terms of planning uh, that has been done since last August we did have some conversations basically with uh, Labrador Grenfell Health in terms of what some of the element that they were going to potentially bring to the facility. So, again, not a lot of conversation with uh, with council, um, not a lot of uh, uh, discussion, but the report kind of led uh, folks to believe in town that the council was, you know, they were in constant contact with the council and the mayor over this uh, issue. Um, that's not that's not correct. Uh, I mean, uh, the last conversation I had with the minister was over a uh, rapid housing initiative that we have here that the province and uh, the, the municipalities is uh, partnered in. Um, the previous, uh, sat in on a rapid, or, uh, sorry, a, an acute response team meeting with uh, with other members of uh, the community and, uh, and the region, uh, where you know the the ministry was there, we were there, but there wasn't a, a an explicit conversation in terms of what the facility is. So, like I say, even up to last week about the announcement that this was going to be on hold until they did further consultation, uh, still hasn't officially been you know. Uh, communicated to the town so you know that caused some concerns some folks in town thought that things were happening behind the scenes that weren't being reported um, so you know last week uh, or Monday I guess or Tuesday uh, I made a statement uh, on, uh, on again CBC that uh, this is definitely not the case there is nothing new for, for us to bring to the community um, and that kind of messaging so uh, we tried to fix uh, fix that as best we can. You know, when the government says there's been constant communication, it feels more like communication breakdown to me. There was a petition out there, got some 900 or 1,000 signatures, mm -hmm. asking for medical treatment offices and uh, shelter beds <coughs> to be inside this facility. But when the government goes on to say they need time to gauge public interest, I mean, the public, including the leadership municipally, have been asking for this. So I don't imagine there's a whole lot of negative pushback about creating this facility. Well, the, the thing is, is that, uh, you know, for the last couple of years, uh, since we, we came into office, this project came into the uh, into the forefront. We've been constantly uh, relaying that message to uh, to government officials um, that you know there isn't a lot of information within the community. There are some agencies that sit around the table, uh, the action team, and they may be a bit more uh, advised than uh, you know than than folks. But you know when people come to me and say, hey, listen, what's uh, what's this going to be, or what's that going to be? Is it going to be this? Is it going to be that? Um, you know, we have to tell them, look, we don't know. Right now, we haven't been presented with anything concrete uh, in terms of using discretionary powers to create this facility. Um, we reached out. We didn't get any new, you know, outside of some of the LG Health Services that uh, that may uh, may go into the uh, facility. So, but we've been constantly and continuously telling uh, provincial officials that you need to have meaningful consultation with the community in general, business community, et cetera. The, uh, the minister made reference to the gathering place being the model, the chosen model, et cetera. Well, when I visit the gathering place 
one of the three times that I visited, one of the key elements there was participation by business and participation by community. So you have to have those meaningful discussions within the community to ensure that you have those buy-ins. And that's not there. I have a business community, <clears throat> excuse me, who, uh, who, is, who has concerns. I have Chamber of Commerce who have concerns. I have residents who have concerns. So I keep asking the question, and we did again in February, what are you hearing, uh, i.e. government officials and flying labor has, what are you hearing in the community? And uh, the response is not the same as a, as a resident of this town, as the mayor of this town, uh, you know, to what, to what I'm hearing and what people are coming to me like with concerns about this, that, or whatever they've heard. So with that lack of communications, there's been the ability then for folks to put in what they think or, or uh, build a case of why it shouldn't happen in our town. And uh, that's strong. So, you know, in, in terms of we've been saying that for a year and a half, just recently there was a telephone survey by uh, MQO Research. Uh, the first question was, uh, what do you think are the, uh, the biggest issues in the province? And then it went directly to direct questioning relating to this new integrated hub. I asked the province, you know, who was it their research that did that? Uh, and I wasn't, I haven't received a response from anybody in terms of that. So uh, I'm just thinking that, you know, finally, somewhere, someone has, uh, has received the message, whether it was through this telephone poll or, or you know, generally continuing to hear what we're saying or maybe need new change of change of face, that the community needs to be consulted, the community needs to understand the uh, you know, the broader community needs to be uh, comfortable in what this facility uh, may be or will be. Uh, and then the decision from the community has to be whether or not you support it. Hopefully it doesn't further complicate or delay things now that there's a new minister in the portfolio. Do you think it will? Well, we kind of had that uh, uh, discussion a little bit uh, yesterday at a, at a meeting we had. Uh, we're hoping it's not. Uh, the current minister comes from a, a municipal background, I guess, and a, you know a community uh, background. So I'm hoping that, uh, and I, I, you know, I said this yesterday. I hope that somebody reaches out, uh, and uh, you know, we start uh, we start some meaningful dialogue. But again, uh, to say that we have been. Uh, you know, uh, in constant contact, both myself as, as mayor and council, uh, as you know, farthest from the truth. So I hope that that uh, I hope that that corrects itself with the new minister. And of course, well, I should add the names. Of course, John Abbott out in that portfolio. Paul Pike in as a new minister, and right, he has a municipal background. He was on the council in St. Lawrence for some 28 years, including yep. a, a stint as the mayor. Uh, good to have you on this morning, Mayor Andrews. Anything else you'd like to say? No, I'd just like to wish you and all the uh, the fathers out there uh, happy Father's Day, Patty, and thanks for your interest. The very same to you. Take care. Stay in touch. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. It's George Andrews. He's the mayor of Happy Valley Goose Bay. Okay, let's take a break. As advertised, join us right after the break to talk about the issue regarding downtown street-level vacancy and or graffiti or any other thing under the sun that would be of concern of the folks represented by the Downtown St. John's Business Commission and their executive director, Scott Clooney, is up next. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation. Conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the executive director of the Downtown St. John's Biz- Business Commission. That's Scott Clooney. And good morning, Scott. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. Welcome back to the show. How Thank you doing? Thank you. Been a while. It has been a while. Too long. Yes. So, you know. The downtown has long had a cyclical issue with vacancies. Some of it we've seen some big tenants move out or what have you, but sometimes the headlines kind of are a bit misleading. You know, talk about street-level vacancies downtown. You had this, uh, prior to COVID, you had this uh, business brochure that you used to publish. So paint us a clearer picture of exactly what the vacancy rate looks like today and how it compares to years past. 
Sure, and and just to clarify, uh, the area that uh, Downtown St John's Business Commission represents is a is a defined geographical area. So a lot of people think of downtown, they think of a fairly large area that can span up as far as La Merchant Road and Harvey Road. Uh, our organization just uh, looks after Docker Street, Water Street, uh, in the east as as far as. Uh, Temperance Street, and then the west as far as Springdale Street and all the streets in between. So just to give you an idea, yep. uh, when we talk about uh, the different uh, aspects from our organization's perspective and our membership, our membership base is located within there, so the business and property owners there. So, um, yeah, so so back to our, our Pocket Guy publication. And, again, uh, there isn't, a, a, unlike uh, the office vacancy where you have a number of companies that come out and they study the office vacancy rates, Turner Drake, for example, being one of them, they keep a close eye on office vacancy and, and accurate percentages and those sorts of things. There isn't anything that's done for street-level uh, commercial space. Uh, so we just try to keep a, a close eye on, on that. And, and sometimes it just means walking up and down the street, which we do multiple times every single day, uh, six, seven times a week. Uh, so we keep an eye on that. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's we're roughly at around 30 or so right now, uh, street-level uh, vacant spaces. Uh, there's a chunk of those uh, spaces that are uh, the spaces have been vacant for a long time and that the buildings are, are no longer uh, usable as they currently sit. They will require uh, a lot of work or complete rebuild or what have you. So, uh, But out of that, then there are a number of spaces then that can be used at any given time for the right tenant or the right business to come and go into those spaces. So I mean, when we say 30%, how does that compare? Because some of these will be retail spaces that can be taken up on a seasonal basis. So where are we so far? You know, if X number of businesses left and some of them have been replaced, how many have not? Uh, there's probably around a dozen or so that haven't been replaced as of right now. And again, it's interesting that you you mentioned because some of them will be replaced on a seasonal basis because uh, we have seen a number of those spaces, uh, particularly the ones that are in uh, the pedestrian mall footprint, get used during that pedestrian mall time frame. Uh, so they they will take over that temporary usage, um, <clears throat> but there's approximately around a dozen, and and those are spread throughout Water Street, Ducker Street, uh, New Gower Street, uh, George Street West, and those sorts of things, right? So and it's a fairly even spread, um, roughly six to about a half a dozen per per street uh, that are there, and there are some I ran into a. a, a someone that's on on their way now of, of uh, renovating one of the spaces on the vacant spaces on Water Street to, to put a new business in that's going to be there in another two weeks. So, you know, we constantly get this ebb and flow of in and out. Uh, we often say that downtown St. John's is the business incubator for the city and for the province in a lot of respect because we have so many small independent uh, businesses that have come down and they start their business down in downtown St. John's. You have places such as Posey Row and Co., for example, that literally rent a room and then you'll see business start in there and then they'll move to their own, like Pinpoint Inc. moved out of Posey Row Inc. and went down across the street and took a space on ground level. 
so we have a lot of that incubation that goes along around, and we have as businesses grow and expand and, and, and make a stronghold in the market, then they're able to get into a bigger space and, and utilize that sort of thing. That happens a lot as well. There's not one thing that contributes to the vacancy rate, whether it be a space is not up to snuff or needs some electrical work or what have you done, not conducive to whatever business uh, looks at the space. But it's the off, the vacant office space that must be a major contributor. Like if ExxonMobil moves out, and that's some 400 employees, that, of course, will have an impact on the local business community. And then you do some comparisons, whether it be with other areas that have been developed for commercial entities that have been proven to be very attractive. And we see these buildings pop up in some of these new commercial areas. Is there any bucking that trend? Is there any turning back? Uh, I think there is. Um, you know, uh, uh, we like to say that downtown is, is a community, and... and you know, you come to work in the downtown, and, and uh, you're, if you're working here, you, you, you can, once you get to the downtown, you can get out at, on your lunch break and go for a walk, and you can do your business. You can go for lunch. You can go grab a coffee. You don't have to, to use your vehicle to, to do any of those sorts of things. Uh, you know, you can go to the dentist, you go to the bank, all that sort of stuff. It's a it's the community of downtown that you all have. It's in that walking footprint and walking distance, and we and we have seen – uh, you know, we're starting to see uh, some of the IT sector that's that's moving into our downtown to backfill some of the vacancies that were created by the uh, the, the the downturn in the oil economy. Uh, we have uh, 235 Water Street. Uh, people know that as, as Scotia Centre, but 235 Water Street has a, a brand new uh, facility there. With it's called Picnic, and 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 they're putting in a lot of. Uh, IT companies, uh, Atlantic Place, for example, are going to be doing, and they've already started to do a major renovation of their food court area to accommodate some new IT companies and, and jumping me moving out onto uh, Water Street front side. So, uh, you know, we're starting to see some of that, and, and, and we're in TD building here ourselves that was vacated. A uh, number of floors were vacated by CNLOPB moving out, but this building is slowly filling back up again. We're starting to see more offices and more tenants and more people coming back in to backfill that. I think we've gone from at peak of 41% vacancy in, in commercial. I think we're somewhere down around 37 now. Uh, so it's slowly chipping away and it's slowly coming down. And, and I think people are recognizing that, you know, the yes, maybe that move to some of those outside urban development areas uh, looked good eight, 10 years ago because they were lured with the, you know, the free parking concept. Mm -hmm. However, uh, when you go out to those spaces, you still have to drive your car there. Yes, you may get to park it for free. However, if you want to do anything else, you've got to get your car and go and do it. Uh, you can't go for a walk unless you want to walk on a four-lane highway or roadway, uh, those sorts of things. So, you know, and you, you don't get to experience the things that you have in our downtown, you know, uh, concerts at lunchtime and, and performances and, and the pedestrian mall occurs and you have that open-air market feel and those sorts of things that are going on. It's just, you know, it, it's those are the attractive things to the downtown. And, and the more that we can get those people back and, and appreciating those things, along with more liviers in our downtown, uh, the more it will benefit uh, the service sector of our downtown and, and our retailers and our restaurants and our cafes and our bars and those sorts of things. And we will see those 30, approximate 30 vacancies slowly get taken away. I mean, prior to uh, the, uh, the, the the downturn in the oil economy, we were at pretty well zero vacancy on a street level perspective, except for those couple of chronic properties that have been vacant now for 10, 15, 20 plus years. Uh, everything was pretty well full, right? And it was because the office sector 
was full and people were coming out and they were um, patronizing the, the businesses and the services in our downtown. So, it, you know, the more we get people back in to our office component and, and filling up and bringing that vacancy back down, the more that they come back out and uh, patronize the other businesses that are that are here in our downtown to help serve them and, and others alike. Yeah, and the vacancy space regarding office space in the uh, 2018 was less than 30%, so maybe about a 10% variance there, which doesn't help. Let's talk about those long-term vacancies, and I would suggest eyesores. Breakwater Books, the old phone building, the Newfoundland Telephone building, uh, CBC Radio building, these are attractive places to set up shop. I know there was one one idea floated for the CBC building there some years back. I believe it was uh, the guy who owned Monastery Spawn Suites, but has there ever been any real progress to talk with whether it be the city or uh, possible developers because those three if we can get something figured out on that front will go an awful long way to improving the economic vibrancy of the downtown yeah and, and, and it all comes back to economy you know um r- right now in this current economic time uh, developers aren't going to make that jump and leap into uh, making those developments uh, unless the economy is there to, to support those uh, yeah, we would love to see them developed eventually, you know, uh, and one of the things we keep talking about all the time is is, is more density and, and more people living in our downtown to then support the services of our downtown. But also, if you're living downtown and you're working downtown, well, then you're also putting less stresses on the other city services that are in the area. So creating more density uh, and and some of those properties, I'm I'm hopeful that you know, if the economy starts to go, come back around again the other way, that we'll see development for those. And there, there have been various different proposals gone through the city. I'm, some, most of them I'm not privy to, obviously. Wouldn't be privy until pretty well the general public sees them, uh, that sort of thing, because obviously they're, they're in development processes or whatever. But there are a number of them that are there. And, and, and we've had some great successes. You know, we were, you know, the old Fabulous 50s site on, on the corner of Water and, and, and Bishop's Cove is now the site of the new Bank of Montreal. Uh, great development, new home for Bank of Montreal. There's still some space there for, uh, for more commercial development on upper floors and, and backsiding on Harbor Drive. And, you know, uh, the, so the, new, the old BMO is now under new ownership, as you know, and there's a new, hopefully a new development plan going to go in place to, to revitalize and, and repopulate that space. So uh, I, I think, as I said, once if the economy can come back around and, and other things start to fill up and it becomes economically viable for those developers to make those developments and put something there that fits and works from an economic perspective and from a community neighborhood downtown perspective. Uh, I think that'll definitely be a, a win for everyone, for sure. No question. A uh, quick one on the pedestrian mall. I think it's brilliant, but of course I don't live or operate a business in the downtown core, so I know the business owners on Duckworth Street feel like they've been left out and been given some empty promises by the city to do more for that area of the downtown. But even business owners on Water Street, not all of them are big on the pedestrian mall. What do the members that you represent say? Because I think it's great, but it's easy for me because I go down and I walk through the free the open market and I'll sit down and have a bite to eat and maybe have a pint, but it doesn't work for all. What's your perspective as an organization on the pedestrian mall? Well, I mean, from, from one perspective, is it's uh, a project uh, by the city that brings a large number of people to our downtown. Uh, the city has done some studies in the past, uh, and, and you know, they're 
their surveys to the general public for uh, on the street. You know, uh, and these are individuals who are telling, say, yeah, well, I came down specifically today for this. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. So, you know, it, we know that it's bringing people to our area. Uh, it doesn't necessarily benefit every single business that's down here. Uh, it will benefit some more than others. It's just like when a cruise ship comes to town, there are some businesses that will benefit more than others or a convention or if we do a special event like a Christmas parade for example we know that it's probably one of the best day of business for restaurants and coffee shops uh, so but it's bringing people to the area it's exposing them to the downtown so if we had for example eight new businesses that opened since the last time you were here last summer well now you get to see those eight new businesses that you maybe never knew were here before in the past. Uh, so it, it's, again, it's about bringing people to the area, letting them explore uh, the businesses that are down here. Then it's, you know, getting the, getting them to attract uh, the extra people that come to our downtown. So it's, you know, it's pedestrian malls, one piece again, you know, and we've seen the impacts of not having cruise ships and conventions and regular bodies of tourists come through in COVID. Uh, now, luckily, we were heavily supported by the local community, which was phenomenal, and we hope to see that continue. Uh, so, again, you know, we're starting to see now, you know, the conventions are coming back. Uh, the special events are coming back with bringing in a large number of tourists, uh, such as our George Street Festival. I mean, a huge uh, week-long festival in our downtown that brings thousands of people to our province specifically to come and see that festival and be a part of the downtown. So. You know, again, it, it benefits everyone in various different ways. Uh, but I think for the most part, people recognize that it's, you know, to see the, the additional people come to our downtown and be here in our downtown, it's, it's, it's valuable. Good to have you on, Scott. Appreciate the time. Have a happy Father's Day. Very same to you, Scott. Take Appreciate care. that. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Scott Clooney, Executive Director of the Downtown St. John's Business Business Commission. How come I can't say that? All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Crown Lands, and we're going to talk about bees. Yesterday, we talked about the swarming season for bees. Now, we're going to talk about bees and different bee products. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number three, say good morning to the fellow behind Upport Acres. That's our buddy, Adam Furlong. Adam, you're on the air. Morning, buddy. Morning to you. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to talk a little more about the Crown Lands thing, but uh, before I do, I'd like to just briefly bring up another topic that I just can't call him without speaking about it. Okay. And that's uh, the Churchill family, Carter Churchill and his parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like the people in this province really need to let go of some of the apathy that exists. I mean, there's there's story after story of things that happen in this province which are completely unacceptable, and people are mad about it for a very brief period of time, and then it kind of fades out of the limelight, and everyone just moves on to the thing. What happened to the Churchill family has me absolutely furious for weeks now, and every single person in this province should be furious about this. I mean, there's a lot of issues these days that have people unjustifiably outraged. But this is something that absolutely warrants outrage from the people of this province. I mean, to know that my money through my tax dollars was used to contribute to fighting this family in court makes my stomach turn. And Carter's father was on the line with you and said that, you know, the government basically spent three quarters of a million dollars to fight a blind child in a wheelchair. A uh, deaf child, court. I know what you mean, yeah. Deaf child, sorry, yeah, yeah sorry about that. No problem. Um, they fought him in court, 
after denying him a right to an education and, and some basic human rights for multiple years. And I, for one, do not approve of our government using my money to defend themselves in court in a case such as this. Not to mention that the Churchill family spent, you know, approximately $93,000 of their money to fight this case in court. And the government spent $750,000. So, I mean, it's just another example of how the government has no sense of accountability when it comes to the money they spend. How are they in court fighting the same case against the Churchill family and spend eight times the amount of money that they did? It's infuriating. I've spoken to it many times, and I think it's worth uh, speaking about. You know, I'll add to your comments in saying not every Carter Churchill has Todd and Kimberly in his, in his corner. What I mean by that exactly. is not every family has fought the good fight to that extent. So Carter Churchill is just emblematic of one child, and I would suggest there's dozens or hundreds just like him that have some sort of additional needs inside the classroom that have not been attended to, and consequently those children have fallen through the cracks never to be retrieved. So it is bigger than Carter Churchill, and hopefully it's a precedent-setting matter where Every type of support required. If you're going to tell me, government, that it's an inclusive education model, then make it so, because it's Absolutely. not. Absolutely. And, and I so. mean, a lot of the kids that are dealing with these similar issues, I mean, good for Carter's parents, but I would suggest that probably the vast majority of kids that are dealing with this type of issue, their parents don't have $93,000 to go to court. Nope. Absolutely right. So, yeah. Anyway, I just had to, I, I couldn't, I <laughs> couldn't mess up talking about that because like i said i've been furious about it for a couple of weeks now fair enough but uh back to the crown lands issues um i received a call from greg french the lawyer in Clarenville there a few days ago and i was talking to him he, he gave me permission to use his name on the line but uh i i think that the phone call i received from him today makes a pretty huge development in this whole crown lands issue uh greg was in the howley building in the archive building in town um, looking for some archive documents that may support um, one of the cases that he was going to court with, one of these cases regarding Crown Lands. And uh, he just, by chance, stumbled across a grant of title from the British Crown for a John Furlong for, and this is the first time that I've used my hometown community name on, on the air, but I, d I don't really care anymore. <laughs> So he found a grant of title from the British Crown for John Furlong from 1902 in Pike Cove West, which is where I'm from. This was not included on the Crown Lands map. If you went on the Crown Lands map, like I said before, my entire hometown community was uh, considered Crown Lands by the Crown. So he sent this off to me, and he sent it off to the Crown, saying, you know, what is this? It's it's not in your records. And the next day. It was on the Crown Lands map. So it's not my land. It's not my parents. I grew up, but it's two sets of my aunts and uncles live on that land. So a week ago, if my uncle ended up in court with the Crown disputing the ownership of his land, he would have lost and had to buy his own land back from the Crown. All the while, this piece of paper from you know 121 years ago was just sitting in a filing cabinet in the Howley building in town, and nobody could even be bothered that it that it was there. So I mean, the grant is the, the grant has always been there for the last 121 years, and he owned that land, and he would have had it basically illegally taken back from him by the government 
all the while while this piece of paper was sitting in a filing cabinet. And now this week, if he went to court, oh, that's all fine. It just doesn't make the any archives. sense. It makes no sense at all. And I mean, if it's if if that's there, then how many more are there? I mean, it's not. It's it's obviously not just John Furlong. That's that's my uh, great grandfather's brother, by the way. He's not the only one who has a grant of title sitting in a filing cabinet in the Howley Building. I'm sure. You know, there was one private member's resolution tabled by Pleman Forsey that got shot down by the uh, governing liberals. No real rationale associated with it. It's been well articulated where the problems are inside this issue. And it's not as simple as just turning back the clock to 1976 and reinstituting squatters' rights or what have you. We've got a disconnect with two separate entities dealing with the Crown Lands matter. The government either doesn't, A, understand it, or B, take it seriously. But if those chickens are coming home to roost rapidly, whether it be with your farm and your inability to satisfy your business model, whether it be the diamonds on Catalina, and there will be dozens and hundreds more just like them. And until we figure it out, folks are going to end up dealing with a ridiculous issue that they didn't create. It's going to cost some time and money and aggravation to deal with something that should not be necessarily uh, basically simple, but the complications that we've added to the pile now are pathetic. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And, and like Greg told me that... Uh he also found another, basically an entire community's worth of these grants of title from the British Crown in the in the archives. Which and and he told me that you know you basically won't be able to find these grants unless you know they're there. You know, you, you, he said it's so difficult to navigate the, those that archive system that you won't find that grant unless you know the grant exists. So you can't even go in there and search for your family's grants because you won't find it. He just found this stuff by chance, and he found an entire community's worth of grants that just luckily enough were filed away in consecutive order. So a community that, you know, a month ago was considered entirely grand land is now completely fine just because Greg just so happened to find all these grants in, in the archives. Not to mention that the, the fact that Twelve volumes of these grants were destroyed in the Great Fire in 1812, and all of those grants are still valid, but there's no tangible record to show who owns the grants or surveys to show the exact location of the grants. So, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the Crown just needs to butt out of these land claim issues and quadding of title applications. I mean, if somebody is claiming to own a large swath of land outside of a community that would have some potential value for future industry and stuff like that, fine, dispute it, because that makes sense. But inside of a community, small pieces of land that private citizens are claiming to own and no other residents are even disputing their ownership of it, just leave it alone. Like, I don't understand why they're just taking private citizens to court over their family land for generations. It, it has no benefit to them or to anyone else. All it's doing is creating undue hardship for the people of this province and i can personally confirm that it creates a lot of mental and emotional anxiety and financial stress at a, at a time when that is the last thing that the residents of this province needs is additional financial stress you're 100 percent right adam and i'm glad you called again today not only to talk about uh, the human rights issue regarding carter churchill but this crown lands issue which is obviously nowhere near settled good to have you on the show have a nice weekend happy father's day 
Thanks, Matty. You too. Okay, man. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, it is time for the news. Lee, you're in the queue from the Cormac B Company. Appreciate your patience. We'll come back and speak with Lee, and they'll be speaking with you. The topic, you know the deal. Up to you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. When I think of Cormac, I think about potatoes, but now I'm also going to think about bees and bee-related products. Join us on line number two is Lee Harvey with the Cormac Bee Company. Good morning, Lee. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Before, I, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I was just yeah. going to ask you what, got, what you got coming up, but then we're also going to talk about some of the things you do at the bee company. Uh, yes, I came into uh, Visa Family, so we decided to take an observation hive. Uh, I'm collaborating with a couple of small businesses, uh, in St. John, uh, one being Five Brother Seeds, so he's going to make up a special honey cheese uh, for the farmer's market tomorrow, and uh, we'll have an observation hive there, and another another small business, Bee Haven, uh, Master Beekeeper is going to be there to answer questions, so the three of us will be there at the one table, collaborating with small businesses, and we'll have an observation hive, uh, people love to come see if they can find the queen bee. It seems to be pretty popular with children and adults. And, uh, yeah, so we'll be at the, at the farmer's market from 10 until 3 tomorrow morning, Saturday. Yes. It, uh, we've seen a real growth in beekeeping, I will call it recreationally, in people's backyards. Is the bee business big on the West Coast? Uh, yes, it's it's coming. Uh, at one time, there was only there was a company called NFB Company, which is uh, Skinners, which were, were were very well known in in bees, and uh, they uh, they gave up business. Oh, I guess probably six years ago now. And uh, the, when the whole uh, Save the Bees uh, campaign came out, everybody got interested. And the pollination we get a uh, we sell nukes to. Uh, proud of individuals that have vegetables or apple trees or pear trees or orchards and they uh, they just they just want to experience the whole uh, experience of the art of beekeeping yeah because I've, i think it's quite interesting a couple of my friends have gotten into it and now it's all of a sudden a passion which is i think pretty great you know we don't probably talk enough about the bee population on the island because we have a very healthy and thankfully a healthy bee population so there's always conversations about the importation of bees from elsewhere and the risks yeah. that that it might pose what's your position on that because we talk about quarantine and some examinations to ensure we don't bring in some of the viruses that are killing bee or decimating bee populations in other parts of the world what do you think about that whole issue? Uh, again, you know, Penny, it's the main concern of beekeepers in Newfoundland, especially bee, uh, commercial beekeepers. Like, uh, you know, uh, an established hive can be depending anywhere from the size hive can be anywhere from one thousand to two thousand dollars. So, if you got, you know, if you got a hundred hives, you're looking at two hundred thousand dollars, whatever it is, and, and then you got to start all over again. And it's a real concern. Uh, the government are working on it, uh, like. You know, it's like anything, I guess, in, in uh, government, it takes time. I know they had a, uh, my my bee mentor is a third generation beekeeper in, in New Brunswick. His name is uh, Fletcher Colbitz, Fletcher Mary Colbitz. And he's currently in St. John's. He started on the West Coast. The government brought him in on Monday and he traveled across the island to uh, do some inspections. He was the... Uh, He's a retired uh, uh, chief apiary inspector for New Brunswick. So the government brought him in this week to uh, check some hives, and they're in the process of hiring a full-time provincial apiarist. And that's that's on the go since I don't know since the middle of May. So I really I really don't know where they're to with that. 
Uh, but that is that is the government's plan to hire a full-time provincial apiarist that can go around and inspect them, and it's well overdue. So it's it's coming, you know, it's it's coming. Uh, let's talk just a little bit about your business as well. I've actually enjoyed one of your products in the past. Someone gave me a jar of raspberry honey. Man, oh man, cold, cold. yeah, yeah. We in, we infuse. Uh, Four or five we infuse, and it's all local. Local blueberries, our own local raspberries, uh, cinnamon, which which is cinnamon sticks, uh, red uh, chili pepper, and uh, one of the favorites is uh, ginger and ginger and uh, lemon, lemon and ginger. Yes. Uh, so we'll have some of this at the market. Uh, very, very yeah. Where I, you know, it's it's not it's not something that's very common. It's a lot of work. Uh, we do small batches, and uh, yeah, it's it's great. We we just kind of want to give back to the public, and that's you know that's what we're in the beekeeping. Just we do a lot of mentoring, uh, help beekeepers. If you purchase a nuka from us, we will follow up and we will answer your questions, and sometimes we'll we'll visit if if time allows. Uh, yeah, and we're having fun with it. Lee, good to have you on the show. Give the folks the details where they can see some of your activities in the beehive and what have you this weekend. This week we're going to St. John's Farmer's Market, which is uh, tomorrow. I lose track of days. Tomorrow uh, from from 10 to 3. The market opens from 9 to 4, I believe. But we're going to be there from 10 to 3 with our observation hive, answering any questions on bees. No question is stupid, of course. And looking forward to sharing, uh, sharing the information with the public. Good to have you on, Lee. Good luck with it. Thank you very much, Freddie. Take care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. Lee Harvey is with the Cormac B Company. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number four and say good morning to Laurel Huget. She's the program coordinator at First Food, First NL. Uh, Line four, Laurel, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Nice to hear from you. Uh, great to have you on the show. I'm always talking about food because it's one thing we all share in common. Regardless of your political stripe or your lot in life, we all eat. I'm interested mm-hmm. in your collaboration with the Human Rights Commission. First off, you know, on the international stage, they talk about food as a right. I've never fully understood what that means because we talk about the millions or hundreds of millions of people in the, in the world that are starving each and every day. So what does that even mean? Yeah, so... Um, Canada signed on to this international law way back in 1948, and it means, yeah, food is a human right, and that there's like some deeper meaning to that too. It's it's more than just like having a couple cans of beans. It's about having the food that nourishes our bodies and minds, that you know connects us to our cultures and traditions, and that preserves our choice and empowerment and our dignity. Um, anyways, yeah, so we signed this international law ages ago, but we never gave it any teeth because we never actually implemented it into our um, domestic policy. So anyone in Canada, we can't actually file a human rights complaint if our right to food isn't being met. Yeah, so I mean, some of that comes across as lip service, and we know that there's four or five million Canadians that are fully reliant on the food bank, so if it's a right, then the rights of millions are not being attended to. So with that not being enshrined in any form of legislation or the Constitution or whatever the case may be, what's the purpose of your work with the Human Rights Commission? What exactly are you going to do? What do you hope it achieves? Yeah, so I think a big thing about the right to food is um, when it's implemented, it's like lighting a fire under the bums of our government officials, the people we elected to start taking on their duties as people who are, you know, supposed to be attending to the well-being of citizens. Um, It's about recognizing that food insecurity is a policy of uh, a failure policy, a 
policy failure. So, um, so they need to be attending to it. They can't stop. They can't keep um, putting that burden on food charities. Um, it's their job to be um, implementing the policies that protect our right to food, and they haven't been doing that. Yeah, I mean, I repeatedly call it a distinct failure in governance, just what the food yeah. insecurity issue looks like. And it's complicated. It could be mm-hmm. one thing in the, living in the east end of St. John's and I can throw a stone at three or four different food retailers versus proximity concerns that people have living in more rural or remote parts of the country. So we've got to advance this cause. I know that this is probably your focus area at Food First. Do you have time and are you interested in talking about the most recent report coming from your group regarding rethinking food insecurity? Because I think that's probably a nice way to put it too because we simply talk about how many people need a food bank and the growing numbers of food banks but if we go back and start at the beginning to understand how we arrived here we probably have a better opportunity to change the way we talk about food insecurity yeah i love that i'd love to talk about that so yeah food banks are like a relatively new thing they kind of came about in the 1980s and the whole idea is it was supposed to be a temporary solution to, at the time, we were in economic recession um, and with, like, conservatives coming into the fore, a lot of rollbacks of our Social Security net. So food banks are supposed to be the thing that got people by until our economy stabilized and, and hopefully we started to, like, make our Social Security net more robust. But now it's, like, over 40 years later and we're more reliant on food banks than ever before. In fact, we've come to associate food banks with the solution to food insecurity. Um, And now with our report, what we're trying to do is both talk to food charities about recognizing like the amazing work that they've done, but that in no circumstances can food charity solve food insecurity. And it certainly doesn't advance our right to food. So again, it's about reframing reframing that conversation to um, recognizing the the policy failures that got us to this stage and the need for government to step up to the plate and start doing their jobs. Fair enough. You know, I hear from Josh Meen, one of the quotes from him is, it's an income problem primarily. And I don't deny that. And, you know, the food inflation issue, I think, has hit most everybody, you know, outside the top 1% or 5% earners. We're all kind of struggling on that front. But for folks who are reliant on food banks or on social assistance or what have you, and, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of half of the folks who are feeling this food insecurity, they're working. So it's not like we're talking about people who are simply reliant on the social safety net. My question, and I've already been taken to task for something I said off the top of the show today is if it's money and we talk about minimum wage or universal basic income or rejigging the social assistance programs or what have you, how do we ensure that any additional money goes to where it's intended? And that's to address food insecurity. And I'm not trying to be judgmental, but we do know that money doesn't always make it to its intended target. So how do we deal with that? Would it be implementation of gift cards or a real targeted focus on food versus simply give you more money? Because you might have a credit card bill. You might have a light bill to pay or a hydro bill or insurance payment, your cell phone bill, and or booze and drugs and lotto tickets. I mean, and I'm not trying to be judgmental because I don't find that to be helpful, but how do we make sure the money gets to where it's supposed to go? Yeah, I mean, Patty, realistically, evidence shows that when we give money to people who are living on low income, they're going to use it for their basic needs. 
And that whole idea about people using it on booze and drugs is like not evidence-based. It's based on our own stigmas around people living with poverty. Every research piece of research that's done this work has shown that people are using the excess money that they get from like additional income support. They're using it to take care of their needs, to support their children, to, you know, further their education. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, maybe once in a while we're going to find that instance that like is the exception to the rule, but people spend way too much time focusing on that because it confirms our biases and our stigmas. Um, overwhelmingly, evidence shows that our best policy avenue is income-based um, solutions and making that income as stigma-free, as barrier-free, and as um, you know accessible to people is the most um, effective way to go about increasing food insecurity and just um, supporting people living in poverty across the board. Yeah, and that's why I asked. And I mean, I yeah. would suggest that people, whoever is in this mystical myth, uh, middle class, they're also finding some of these food issues, whether it be cutting back on the amount they eat, or skipping days because the bills are piling up. They really are. We we had some money in our pockets if folks were able to avail of some COVID-related support mechanisms. Now that they've gone, this rears its head probably more aggressively than it did in years past. Okay, so evidence-based makes all the sense in the world to me, and I'm not trying to focus in on folks who are living in the actual categories that are called uh, working poor or living in poverty. Just really curious as how do we get to our intended goal because, you know, the evidence says one thing, but let's just put it this way. I have a friend who's working, and he came to me to describe his financial woes some weeks back. So any more money he gets, as much as he'd like to spend it to fill up the cupboard or the fridge, he's behind on almost every bill that ends up in his mailbox. So that's why I asked. It's more about, you know, how people attend to all of these growing bills and maybe falling behind on some mm-hmm. bills versus maybe a keen and hyper focus on food. That's why I asked, but I appreciate the evidence-based response. Right. And if I can just like maybe like expand on that. So I'm like getting more at your question. You know, there are other really important interventions that we need to be making. We need to make housing more affordable. We need to be investing in public transit. Um, We need to be like addressing all of those kind of systemic inequities and oppressions that like make um, like the wealth gap between the rich and the poor so significant that even folks who are working are struggling to get by. Um, So this is going to take. Yeah, we talk about income solutions as like kind of like. Like the first and like easiest main step to consider, but like we're talking about some pretty significant changes across the board. Yeah, and I mean the the housing issue is really one where we have seen this problem grow. There's been very little intervention. Some you know, we'll announce money for 850 affordable housing units. But the reality is, given the trends of population growth in this province and across the country, we'll need to build more homes or housing units in the next 10 years than we've built in the last 50. How we mm-hmm. haven't got out, gotten out in front of that, because that contributes to every other evil or ill that we experience, whether it be with food or po- bills piling up or what have you. Housing yeah. is at the very top of that list. And I don't know of one organization or politician that has any idea how we catch up. Just imagine, we have to build more homes in 10 years that we did in the last 50. Unreal. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. And that's not my realm of, like, expertise, but it just Nor goes mine. to say, like, yeah, like, we need to be really, like, lighting the fire under the feet of our politicians to be making, like, really big policy decisions because, like food, housing is in uh, very um, centered around the profits of other people. And that's a basic right. People shouldn't be making exorbitant profits off of um, the rest of us trying to get our needs met. And that's probably a really interesting place to start.
march when it comes to politicians intervening yeah you know people of foreign countries foreign citizens washing their money here in the real estate market and let me add this and i'll let you go because i know it's not your focus area of expertise mm. nor mine 53 percent of elected members of parliament have are landlords or they have investments in real estate which makes it extremely difficult to trust their motivations to try to deal with mm-hmm. issues 53 percent are in the housing market there's something patently wrong with that yeah i wholeheartedly agree appreciate the time laurel nice to speak with you yeah, thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Laura Hugo. She's the program coordinator, Food First NL. Interesting stuff. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with you. The topic, up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's talk a little. Traveling nurses, one of the three candidates vying to be the next leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Eugene Manning. Good morning, Eugene. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Best kind. How about you? Not too bad, Patty. Side, I picture with uh, Brad and Fernando Alonso as well. I'm a Kimi Räikkönen fellow myself, but I, uh, I got a kick out of it too. I was pretty envious of him, to tell you the truth. I loved Kimi. I think he competed in more F1 races than anyone in history, if I remember correctly. And, of course, he was a champion when he was behind the wheel of the Ferrari, so I love Kimi. Yeah, I think Fernando's catching up on the race. I'm he not is. sure on that. Yeah. But uh, uh, you're having a great great show this morning. I heard Adam on there about the Crown Land, and I've been up to see Adam a few months ago. And uh, there's a pile of things. But you mentioned in your preamble this morning uh, two things, first of all. You mentioned about traveling nurses and that studying long-term care homes. Patty, I, uh, I don't know if you're familiar. In Newfoundland and Labrador, we have 26 long-term care home beds for every 1,000 people over the age of 65 in this province. It's the second lowest in the country. It just speaks once again to one of those things that we need addressed with an aging population, probably the most aged population in the country, and have that type of statistic. That is something that is troubling and has to be addressed in the uh, in the coming months. Yeah, I don't dispute that, but let me add to that. You know, whether it be the current and former seniors advocate and some moves that are happening on the federal front, there's more and more conversation as opposed to institutionalizing seniors is trying to come up with better ways to age in place, which seems to be the preference unless you have distinct medical needs to age in place seems to be the preference for many. So whether it be Susan, Susan Walsh or Suzanne Brake, they have that as a keen focus. So I don't deny your point because the math is the math, but figuring out a better way to age versus long-term get, long-term bed construction is probably, you know, there's a blend required, but I th- if it was me, I'd put my priority and try to figure out how to keep people in their own homes for longer. Yes, Patty, and we uh, will be rolling out some healthcare policy uh, next week when we're in Central, and we're going to speak to that. And to your point of uh, treating patients and geriatrics in in their home is going to be a key part. One to uh, providing that level of care they want. I know my own grandparents wanted to, to my grandmother still in her home, and. Um, and that's where she wants to stay, and we're going to try and do our best to do there. But it just speaks to a larger, larger package that has to be addressed. I had a call back when I was launching my campaign. I had a gentleman who couldn't make it to the launch, and he's as tough as nails as they come. And he called me in tears. His wife had been in a, he had been in a gurney in emergency room for 18 days waiting for a long-term care bed. And that, that radiates right back through the hospital system. The empathy, that, that acute care bed that, that woman was in was a spot that could have been taken by someone else and could have moved people through the system. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, uh, I, I talk about it all the time. It has implications on emergency rooms and surgical backlogs. If we get it right in long-term care, we'll be way better off down the line. And uh, the, the other thing you mentioned was traveling nurses. And it, I think it speaks to the larger issue of trying to address what's urgent as opposed to any long-term solutions in healthcare. I have a friend that is a nurse, and I called her this week because for Father's Day weekend, I was hoping to get my little fellas to go trouting, and I was calling to check on her little fellas, and she's working this weekend, and she was laying out the situation. I mean, she said she has 10 years' experience as a registered nurse um, in the system. The nurse next to her is a recent graduate, makes more than double, she does, and can pretty much pick her weekends off. 
So where's the incentive for that person to stay in the system and and continue on with her career uh, with the system as opposed to jumping ship, getting to pick her own schedule? And I'm with you. It might not be the most popular thing, but a non-compete class to our to our nursing system so that we can instill because the throwing money at the problem, it fixes it today, yes, but we are headed for a, a much larger issue in six months or a year if we keep having people move into a into a contract model as opposed to long-term civil servants to be able to address those challenges. I mean, like I think I said off the top of the show, I'm not even really sure what the origin is of the travel agency nurse issue. It's probably been around for a long time, but now that we see the iron vacancies that we have and the implications on the system and the amount of money spent on travel agency nurses, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of four or five times more than we spend on nurses that are in the system, what's going on here? Well, it's it's the it's the temporary fix. I mean, it's essentially uh, you know um, not to not not to simplify it too much, but it is set for ebbs and flows in the system. If you have an issue where you need a nurse or you need a temporary employee for a couple of months, you bring in contract workers. I've brought them in myself in my business. It's to get you over a hump or to alleviate things. But if we're having traveling nurses move into the system for months or years at a time, and to your point, I, I hadn't heard that stat this morning. I think you said 18.4 versus 4.5 million. 18.4 over 12 months compared to 4.1 million employee nurses already in the system. I mean, how is that sustainable, Patty? It's not. You know, and yet no one like no one wants to speak to it and they say, oh, we can't take them out because it'll cause more issues next week. I'm not worried about next week. I'm worried about next month and next year. These have to be long-term solutions we have to take on these things. Like, it just seems like every day it's like, okay, well, we'll get through to Friday and then we'll pick it up again on Monday and we'll survive. This thing at some point has to get more about survival, doesn't it? It has to be. Well, uh, you know, well, someone could say, well, we just shouldn't use them. Well, if you back out all the travel agency nurses here, you make things worse today and tomorrow. But how we figure out how to decrease our reliance on the travel nurses, whether it be, you know, obviously the, the words we say all the time, recruit and retain, recruit and retain, recruit. Yes, but how did we even get here? Because an understanding of that might help us try to uh, forge a plan that will actually work in the future. Because it's not it's one thing to say, well, 18.1 versus 18.4 versus 4.1, there's a problem. Yeah, there's a problem. But how did this even begin? How did it grow? What caused it to grow? How do we reverse that trend? Because sustainability, this one is the epitome of not sustainable or unsustainable. And it seems like the trend is going the other way. Come back to your particular point. How can we talk about recruit, uh, recruitment and retention? If you look at a nurse, at a, at a recent grad or someone moving here, and you say, you take this path and you make double, or you take this path and we're going to dictate your schedule day in, day out, and you're going to make a lot less than the person sitting next to you. Like and because the security is there, because we're not ru- we're not running out of a need for nurses any day, any day soon, nor are we running out of need for anyone in the healthcare system. Absolutely but right. Maybe, maybe it's something yeah. that someone have to have to hold the line on and and take a stand and say this is how it has. To, like I agree, you can't just turn it off. That with all of these things, funny the conversations have going around. And I said you're not going to solve all these problems overnight, but. Um, tell us how to eat an elephant one bite at a time. You got to start somewhere, yep. and you have to start to curb it back and say, no, no. Over the next, whether it be three months, six months, we are going to tra- change this trend. And yeah, we are going to hold the line, and we are going to say whether it be non-compete or other incentives, we're going to put people back in the system, and we're going to make their schedule livable so that people can have a quality of life, and that poor nurse can have take our little fella trout out in the brook on Saturday with me and everything else. And but. It, it'll incentivize people to move into that system. But just throwing throwing money at every problem, Patty, is not the solution. And it's all right when it's someone else's money, but it's mine and your money. That it is. You know, it's always highly questionable how our money is spent. But this one, 
here. I'm going to have to try to wrap my mind around it a bit more. And I've got another, might be fairly boring topic on my weekend read list is about housing and upzoning. I'm going to dig into what they're do- they've done in Auckland, New Zealand, which seems to have eased their housing crunch because it doesn't seem like many folks that we've elected are coming up with uh, much in the way of ideas versus here's some money to build 850 units. Okay, thanks. Yes, yeah, it's funny. I, I bring my uh, stack of notes to bed at night and I'm reading through and that's, I was on that long-term care one last night. It's a, it's a nice bedtime reading for sure. But uh, coming back on the housing, speak to Adam Furlong's situation here today in Crown Lens. Patty, we were out on that last year at the AGM, brought it to the fore, passed unanimously. It was part of our launch speech. We put up a petition. I heard from Adam, heard from people across the province. And when you were speaking to him today, you pointed out you don't know if it's that people don't care or they don't understand. Patty, I think it's that they just don't understand. I think they're trying their best, but unless you've lived it and you understand the implications of that and how it stymies people not from only building their own houses, how many developers do we have out there? You know, I'm not talking to your point however many hundreds of units, but one or two units or small subdivisions and you get into the crown land system and you throw up your hands. It's because the government never tells you no. They tell you maybe. And you spend five, six, seven years trying to get a, a, a development through and it's a time tax. Talk about taxes on people. Look at the time tax that we bring in on business and others when we're trying to create economic development, trying to create housing to get people to move here. It's, it's, but if you don't understand it and you've never lived it, and you don't, then it's very hard to relate to people. It's very hard to relate to someone if you've never had to try to register a trailer at motor vehicle registration. It took you seven weeks to do so. How can you understand the implications of that down the line? And how I didn't hire three or four fellas because there was no truck for them to go with because the motor vehicle registration was seven weeks behind. There has to be an understanding in government and how it relates. And to, end, to Adam's point, funny enough, you're saying with apathy and how things drop off the radar. We have a house that sits about 44 days a year, 39, I think, planned for this year. Things drop off because they're not in the four. Everyone goes home, so you call your MHA then to help you out, and they do a great job of it. And afterwards, you say, that's a great work my MHA did. But if they had been in the house addressing these challenges, the issue probably wouldn't have been there in the first place. I don't dispute that, but we also have to find a way for them to be a bit more effective and efficient while sitting in the house because some of the hijinks of slapping the top of the desk with something that was really quite juvenile or lame that was a barb thrown across the house, that's a waste of time. So we got to figure out efficiency and productivity as much as days sat. I appreciate the time, Eugene. Thanks for this. Appreciate it. Thank you, Patty. Just to note, uh, the deadline today for the nominations is actually today. So it looks like the, the race is set. Um, so it'll be interesting in the coming days to see what the party comes out with. And uh, I just want to say thank you to all my volunteers. that have helped throughout. And uh, we're having a good tour. And uh, for you and your listeners, feel free to check me out on eugenemanning.ca. I look forward to talking to you in the coming weeks. And happy Father's Day. You as well. Have a good one. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Bye. Eugene Manning, one of the three, wants to be the leader. That includes Lloyd Parrott and Tony Wakeham. Before we get to the break, we're going to line number two. Joe, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Okay, sir. How you doing? Not too bad. Call this morning to see if there's any uh, talk on the recreational food fishery. <laughs> Good question. So, short answer, no. I haven't heard of anything from DFO. The question is to why they delay this announcement every single year. And nothing really, really changes. Last year, we found out on the 22nd of June that it was opening on the 2nd of July for 39 days, just like it was the year before. But they haven't told us quite yet. I'm expecting that to be next week. Right on. We're getting pretty close to the deadline there now for the first weekend of July, hey, bud? Absolutely. Yeah. So, do you hear anything? Let us know. We are on the radio, bud. Absolutely will. All right. Thank you. You're welcome, Joe. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the RNC Complaints Commission. We'll also talk about housing and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away.
Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the program. Well, let's talk about some amphibious architecture, design, and engineering. Rejoining us on the program on line number seven is Dr. Elizabeth English, She's the founder and director of the Buoyant Foundation Project and Waterloo Professor of Architecture. Good morning, Dr. Good morning, Dr. English. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's a pleasure to be to, to speak with you. I'm glad that you had time to come back on because, unfortunately, because of the time on the clock, we gave you very few minutes, a short shrift last time around. So let's talk about what you are responsible for inside of this uh, Buoyant Foundation project, then talk about some of the things you do. Well, the Buoyant Foundation project is a basically a nonprofit research organi- organization that I set up to be the host for the work that I do developing amphibious construction. And it can be um, new-built amphibious houses, um, or mostly I work on the retrofit of existing houses so that the next time a flood comes, the house will rise up and float on top of the water while the flood is there and then come back down onto its regular foundation when the flood goes away. So it sounds like, for starters, it's really quite interesting, but there's actually work being done on this now, maybe not only at your institute, but also I read in the newsletter that you sent us some while back at the Brandenburg University of Technology's Institute for Floating Buildings. So how far along are we in this, or is this something that I see in a a tourism commercial from Fiji? Um, No, they they don't have them in Fiji, as far as I know. Um, But uh, Europe and Asia are a little farther ahead of North America. We don't have very many amphibious houses in North America, and I'm trying to change that. Where's the focus area? What part of the country? Um, Right now, I'm working mostly in Manitoba and British Columbia. Are we talking about more northern parts of those provinces, or is this something that could be on traditional floodplains in the center of Ontario? It it could be central Ontario. I'm not working in uh, uh, the most northern uh, parts of the provinces. I'm in southern British Columbia and central Manitoba. So it's not just about the architecture, design, and engineering of these homes, but also talking about how we talk about uh, flood management practices and other inputs that would influence whether or not this is even needed. Um, Absolutely. So uh, in order and, and to find out whether it's appropriate. So you have to have a particular type of flooding and you have to have a particular type of house for it to make practical sense to try this at this point. So, I mean, do you do this type of work in a a wave tank or practical applications for compilation of data? So how does the process work to see whether or not this is going to work in the real world, where it can work best, and other, whether it be flood management or what have you? Well, the the process is that uh, either I find a place in the world that I think needs this or someplace in the world that wants it finds me. And then uh, we assess whether it's an appropriate type of flooding um, because uh, we don't want a flood situation where there's a very, we don't want to be in the middle of a high velocity river. Uh, We want to be on the floodplain. We don't want to be 
terribly close to the shore where we might have storm surge. We want to be a little ways back from the coast so that the water is um, there's some lateral velocity of the water, but it's mostly rising. Um, that's the stage that our technology is at this point. So we find appropriate flooding, and then we find appropriate housing. So we don't want a slab-on-grade house or um, a house that is uh, terribly heavy, concrete or a lot of brick. We want to find a lightweight house with a simple floor plan. Um, so uh, and and actually, the uh, the best house is a house that has a crawl space rather than a basement. Is at that, this stage, is that a buoyancy issue or is that just a weight issue? It's it's a buoyancy issue. It's having a place to put the buoyancy underneath the first floor, so that when it's like putting a floating dock underneath your house. So you can put it in the basement, but then you can't use the basement anymore. I get it. And now I know what you mean by appropriate flooding, because water is the unstoppable force. You won't be able to be on the coastline and push back a tidal wave, but further inland where the water starts to rise slower and is not rushing, then, of course, this could be adopted. Okay, that makes sense to me now. So tell us what two-wide seeing means. Two-wide seeing um, is a concept uh, that refers to Uh, looking at the world both from the perspective of the of Western culture uh, which mainstream culture in Canada is a part of um, uh, and also looking at the world from the point of view of uh, indigenous peoples so that um, there is a way of looking at the world that takes Mother Nature more into account um, and uh, and that acknowledges that indigenous people uh, see the world in a different are, are, are brought up to see the world in a different way than mainstream culture and to try to blend these two ways of seeing the, the world uh, for the betterment of, of everyone. Why is that important? Because if, if this is going to be incorporated, people would like to know that their home would not be destroyed by the water. So why is that concept important as a starting point? Um, well, it's not a starting point for us. Um, all the, when I started this project 17 years ago, um, and I only learned of two-eyed seeing uh, maybe two or three years ago, but I found that it was a concept that I had uh, the the core of which I had been incorporating in my work all along. Um, uh, indigenous culture looks at nature with a different perspective and um, uh, uh, makes decisions based on working in harmony with with nature rather than trying to control nature. So I'm not trying to control the water. I'm trying to let the water be itself, be water and do what the water wants to do. And we protect ourselves by getting ourselves out of the way rather than trying to tell the water what to do. Because that would be a flight of fancy, I would imagine. Okay, well, so, I'm sorry. But, but you see how, how often we try that, building um, dikes and levees and seawalls and dams and all of those things control the water and try to make the water basically bend to the will of humankind. And that's, that's futile. 
Absolutely. Pick a fight with Mother Nature, you're going to lose. Every single and time. the indigenous culture knows that. Uh, it's good to have you on the show, Dr. English. Where can people find out more about your work? Um, by going to my website, which is www.buoyantfoundation.org. Thanks for making time for the show again this morning. I enjoyed the chat. Oh, thank you so very much for, for um, inviting me to be here. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Elizabeth English, founder and director of the Buoyant Foundation. Okay, you know, those types of concepts, I mean, isn't that an interesting way to put it? She's 100% right. Is we've been trying to dictate to the water where we want the water to go with some successes, but more failures than successes, as opposed to understanding where the water is going, how it's getting there, what we can do about it. Interesting stuff. All right, smart people out there, Brian. Let's go to line number three. Josh, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how you doing? Excellent. How about you? Not too bad, buddy. Uh, I just picked up a little husky there out on Elizabeth Avenue there, dodging in and out of traffic. Uh, I got no tags on right in there. I figured I'd call in and see if we can uh, try to get him home, I suppose. A little so we're talking about a husky pup? Uh, well, he's, not, he's, not, he's smaller than my husky, but no, he's a full-size husky. Okay. <laughs> so a husky roaming around Elizabeth Avenue. Unfortunately, no tags or identifying marks on the tag or a collar. So if you're missing your husky, Josh has it. Are you bringing the dog home, or what's the plan? Uh, I'm going around doing service calls for work here now, so you might hang out with me for the next call, and uh, we'll go from there, I suppose. <laughs> okay, so folks, if you're out there roaming around that part of town looking for your Husky, we know where it is. Uh, so how about this? They call us, and we'll put them in contact with you. Work? Yeah, that's, that's no problem at all, my friend. Good man. Thanks for this, Josh. That's right, bud. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Yeah. Another dog on the loose. Let's take that break. When we come back, Shireen, you're next to talk about the Complaints Commission at the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Shireen. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you today? I'm doing okay. Did I pronounce your name properly? Uh, Shireen. Yes. Shireen. Good. Well, I want to talk to you about the um, RNC Public Complaints Commission. Um, I don't know if many people know about the timeline or how it works, but it really is truly frustrating because it takes too long. And in addition to that, if you have an item that is pressing that it needs to be handled, it can go on up to a year or two for it to actually be addressed. I'll give you an example. I had an incident uh, that happened, a very disturbing incident that happened to me on uh, October, October past. And it was quite alarming. I'm a single mom. I have two teenage daughters at my house. And it was around a, um, a ticket that was bogusly given to me by the police officer. He actually never witnessed the incident. So it was based on somebody else's sale. Um, I'm not going to talk about the ticket because I went to court. The uh, prosecutor didn't find it because it was bogus. It was withdrawn. My point is, is the actual behavior of the police officer at the time. Um, he showed up 10 days after he issued me the ticket in October with another police officer. So here we are, two police cars honing in on my house, like I'm some sort of a criminal, which I'm not, and coming to my door and wanting to talk to me. They want to talk to me about the ticket. And he said to me, I would like to see the ticket. And I'm thinking to myself, I wasn't home at the time, but I have a doorbell camera. And I said to him, well, as far as I'm concerned, 
it's a carbon copy ticket. What you see is what I see. And I'm the type of person, I know my rights. Um, and then he went on and he asked me, when are you going to be home again? I said, well, I'm going to be out of town. That was a Thursday. Um, so he goes away. And I said to him, if you, he, he has my email address. He has my phone. Never called ahead of time. That's fine. So it was a little bit alarming that two cars sweeping in at my house for a ticket. Take a look at a traffic ticket. Um, and then come, I was out of town. Come Thursday, uh, Saturday night, that three days after, 10 o'clock at night, they both show up again. Unannounced, my, door, my doorbell camera goes on, and they say, are you home? And I said to him, no, I told you I'm not home. I'm away for the, for the weekend. So to me, this is alarming. First of all, he never told me why he wanted to take a look at the ticket. For me, uh, it was quite harassing, in my opinion. Uh, I waited. The, the The prosecutor took away the ticket. And I, I, uh, you, you don't know me. You don't see me. I'm not a white Caucasian female. But I think there was some sort of a bias there on his end. So I said, I'm going to put in a, a ticket. Can somebody tell me why you showed up? It was after me asking many, many times why he wanted to like, take a look at the ticket. And I said to him, well, if there's something you, you need to do, you can't get a hold of me. Chances are you, you can send it by registered mail if you want to do something with it. Just don't come to my house. Um, anyway, so that happened. I put in a complaint to the RNC Complaints Commission about that in February. So you have six months from the date of the initial interaction that you're complaining about to actually put in a complaint. So I put it in in February, and I'm still waiting. Today is June. I'm still waiting for a decision to be made whether they're going to accept my complaint or they're not going to accept my complaint. And on top of it, I did an ATIP request to see what he put in into his account, like of what happened those days. He completely lied. I have a doorbell recording saying that he did not tell me the reason why he showed up at my doorstep. Yet in his report, through the ATIP report that I put through, he said that he explained to me, he, he said everything right, in which in case it didn't. So, as you know, from what I just explained to you, there's a lot of issues here. Yeah, it sounds First like it. Issue is, yeah. So, right off the bat, what's the, what was the ticket about? I was, it was in a, it happened outside of the Walmart parking lot. There's a, there's a man who um, pretty much in the parking lot um, was having a road rage. Blocked me. I even had a witness, him and his uh, a gentleman, very nice guy, um, that witnessed his road rage. Um, so I came in and I spoke with him. And when this man came out of his car, the, the racial slurs that came out of his mouth was horrible. So um, this man and his wife were kind enough to be my witnesses. So this is, I called the police. I called him and I told him this is, I would like you to issue him a ticket because he got me off for no reason. And then he went on to say, go back to your country, racial slurs, and complaining about the fact that I'm a female. So the police officer showed up three days later, took my statement, went and issued him a ticket. As far as I know, he did. I don't think he did. I don't know. There's no confirmation. But came back to give me a ticket. Get back to give me a ticket. He goes, oh, ma'am, the reason why he had a, um, a 
he lost it on me is because you cut him off earlier. I was issued a ticket because of that. Wait now, so the police took someone else's word for something that they did not see and consequently issued a ticket for something they didn't witness. And, he, and that violation. guy didn't have a witness. So when he, when the police what? officer came and took my account, had the name of my witness, he had his phone number, and he called him prior to go to issue the, the ticket to the other person. But when he came and gave me a ticket, he said, oh, the guy had a witness. I go, who was his witness? He goes, well, I don't have his name or her name, but he's going to email it to me. And I was very, very upset because I go, don't you have to have a witness first before you come and issue me a ticket? Man, so... So I've been waiting on that for, for and my doorbell captured all the conversation. Well, there's nothing quite as effective as let's go to the tape. So here we have a video recording of what was said versus what someone... Uh, wrote down on a piece of paper as to their position or their recollection of events. So the process obviously isn't working in your favor regarding time, and who knows whether or not they'll actually accept it and do further investigation or whatever the fallout of that will be. Has anyone told you that you can expect it to take six months or nine months or 12 months, or is that simply silence? Well, the I don't know if you knew this, but the commissioner who handles, who accepts and, and rejects these um Complaints only works at the office one day a week. Oh, I did not know that. One day a week on Mondays. So how are you going to have all these public complaints that are coming through handled by one person? So this person has to, I mean, I, I kudos to her. I don't know why. Is it because her schedule or is it limitation from a budget perspective? She works one day a week. I don't know. However... She has to handle the new complaints that are coming in. She has to handle the decisions that are coming back from the chief's office on historical complaints. She has to look at decisions. She has to read through. How are you going to go through that many complaints? And they don't give you, you ask how many complaints there are and you put in an active request. Nobody gives you information because they don't want you to know what's the holdup. Yeah. It's obviously not working. In my case, my point is, is this police officer obviously has some anger issues, and I don't know if he is racist. I don't know. But since October, he's still out there doing his work. And how many other people has he done this to? And got away with it. Like, where does the integrity come and the safety of the public comes in when they swear to protect the public, yet on their very black and white, when I put in the ATIP request, what he wrote there is not what happened. And I said to the complaints commission, I go, I have all the recordings. Feel free to ask me for them. You can listen to them. It's like a radio silence. I don't know if they're trying to sweep it under the rug. They don't want people to know. And on top of it, I mean, there's no recourse for us. So um, further to that, I went in and I put in an ATIP request to talk about the procedure. And especially when it comes to, well, do you um, test your members for drugs? Do you do random testing for alcohol? Do you do 
random testing for steroids. I had to go through the public complaint, the OIPC, to have them come back and give me an answer to get an answer. They don't do any of that. And they don't even have a policy on the use of steroids. Which I think the reason this guy was so angry, I think he was, but I can't tell you for sure. But if I wanted him to be tested for any illicit drugs or alcohol, me as a public member, there is no recourse anywhere to have that done. I don't really know what to say, even so far as what kind of follow-up I could do, because when it comes down to individual cases, we run into endless roadblocks. But concepts of testing and veracity of claim and the timeline for uh, taking up investigations based on a complaint, those are things in general terms we can try to help figure out and follow up on. But your specific case, of course, I'll be told, well, this is a specific matter that we won't comment on. But, Shereen, I appreciate and the time. Okay, and that's fine, but the, the one thing I'd like to say is they say they're under a staff, but they found on a Saturday night at 10 o'clock, they found the time and authorized two cars to come to my house to take a look at a ticket. That one I can't understand, period. But what I want you to do while I do the basic follow-up on the broad strokes is let us know how this unfolds if you ever comes to some sort of resolution. Yes, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Good luck. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Boy, uh, break time for the news. When we come back, Robin's here to talk about housing. Then we're talking about the recreational food fishery, traveling nurses, or whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Robin, you're on the air. Hey, how are you? Okay this morning. How about you? Uh, trying to stay positive through the fog. <laughs> Fair ball. Uh, yeah. Um, I am calling because I tuned in. I think it was someone from Food First uh, that you were talking to about poverty and food. Am I right? There was a few calls ago. Yeah, Laurel Huget. Uh, she's the program coordinator at Food First. Huget. Fantastic. Um, uh, and it's really great to see new voices coming to to the forefront that uh, understand what needs to be done and uh, are happy to speak about it. And I just want to say, too, I want to congratulate Food First on releasing uh, their report uh, day before yesterday because I truly feel like that is the type of conversations we need to be having in all of our sectors, from housing to um, children in care, uh, to anywhere where uh, any group that CSSD deals with. Um, we should be looking at uh, systems change, okay? And uh, so Josh and uh, Food First kind of, you know, introduced the topic of system change through their report. And I'm here to talk about how we can use that type of model to consider housing. Uh, opportunities. And so one of the things I've discovered in just talking to people in my neighborhood uh, and having conversations with them is that uh, all these programs that have been created by government to support or alleviate some of the strains that people who are are living uh, below the poverty line are experiencing uh, are not designed for the people who will be using it. And so when you have bureaucrats uh, and policy people, which I have, uh, you know, experience working with, um, who are, are not properly engaging with the people who are 
the people who will most use the service. You end up with programs uh, that don't meet the needs of the people they're trying to help. And so we can look at this across every sector. Um, you know, the, the nursing, uh, travel nurses, for example, uh, if, if whoever is designing these policies around recruitment actually went to talk to the, the nurses that are graduating, uh, they would understand and they would be able to build recruitment programs that would actually be, be designed for them specifically and would meet their, those needs. And so government really needs to start looking at um, this a different approach to community engagement. Uh, if I look at their public engagement opportunities, really it's, it's just a website and maybe, uh, you know, a town hall. But, you know, when they're talking about early learning and care, for example, there's really no opportunities for mother of ch mothers of children uh, who can't access childcare to, to be a part of those conversations. And they're the people that need to be at the table. I, I get the point. I would think that there's very similar overlap in the world of parents looking for childcare. There'd be very similar concerns or questions or uh, things that registered nurses who are graduating would need for them to have a healthy work-life balance and all those uh, other, other variables. Housing to me is much more complicated because housing is not simply just a roof over your head because it would be different for seniors, be different for people with disabilities, be different for people with supervised living, different people different socioeconomic status, different rural and urban. So to me, that becomes somewhere where, you know, talking directly to the people who need housing and housing supports would probably bring upon a ton of variables versus the other two areas. I get exactly what you're saying, but I think that housing issue is just so much more complicated than people pretend it is because the differences in needs and wants and wares are just so extraordinary compared to if I need a spot for my toddler, I need a spot for my toddler. I need it to be regulated and well-trained, well-paid early childhood educators, all of those obvious things, but housing to me is a bit more complicated. What do you think? Um, I, I, so I would agree. I would have agreed with you before moving to this neighborhood and actually getting to know the people who live here. And, you know, when you're not living here, you're not having real conversations with people who are living in housing and experiencing uh, the fear of living in a home where they don't feel safe and raising their children uh, and they have no recourse. Um, it, it, you know, I when I look at housing and the issues that we have with it, it's part of the reason is because we we're only talking about building new homes. We're not talking about having outreach supports that would uh, ensure that people who are living in these homes have everything they need to be able to live a healthy life. Um, I've got a number of examples that I can bring out, but basically, you know, there are no community services in Tessier Park. So uh, back when government and housing were building uh, low-income neighborhoods, so I can point to the five major ones in the city, the Buckmaster Circle, Rabbit Town, Virginia Park, um, you know, the McMoran, like every community center, they all have community centers, okay? And that is the hub of the community. And the things that are happening within those community centers are, are saving lives every day. And they don't get enough funding to be able to really um, develop programs further. They are, they're forced to fundraise to be able to provide these supports. Our community centers only really get funding for employment, 
services, so basically uh, employment opportunities to get people back out working, but they do such mo- so much more than that. They're feeding children. They're, um, you know, a place for someone to go to get uh, access to social support. So in our downtown community of Tessier Park, we don't have that presence. And so I know back a few years ago uh, when Kim White was running the Community Sector Council, uh, no, it was the Community Center Alliance, sorry, there's so many not-for-profits, um, she was looking at, and I was helping her with, uh, developing a program that would be um, an outreach of the programs that they offered at their community center. So basically taking all the services they offered at Froud Avenue, for example, and creating satellite teams, okay? so that would, because uh, there's new housing units and areas that have popped up since, um, you know, the big build of the five community centers. So finding ways of bringing the program out to the communities. Another issue, and I can tell you how prevalent this is, is mental health services. There are zero. And people, I can tell you right now that a, a quarter of the people who live in this neighborhood are suffering from major mental health conditions with no access to a doctor, no access to any therapy or supports uh, within the community. They have to go find them. And so a lot of them don't have the agency to understand where to go looking for them. So we have a, a very patchwork approach to providing these services to people to ensure that they lead a successful life. We can't just put money in some people's hands. I mean, I I heard your comment off the start, and I have to say that I really feel like it's up to the individual to decide how they spend their money. Like, it's like when you give to someone, you can like give someone something, you can't expect to dictate what they then do with it. Um, So, and and we're- But but Robin, how can we just, how can we just say that though? Because if you have a issue that we're focusing in on and we don't target supports to rectify one issue or another, then basically it's just giving people money. And so does that really work? Does that get us where we want to go? I mean, even when the federal government uses things like we've uh, raised X number of millions of children out of poverty because of the child tax benefit, how do they come to that conclusion? So I don't dispute the it's an income issue primarily, but more money is not always necessarily the, the sole solution to these things. If we're trying to deal with food insecurity, then let's make sure it's targeted enough that it actually meets food security issues. Wouldn't, we, wouldn't that be the right tact? But it comes with social programs. We cannot give money to people and not have any social supports with it. That's, that's the not, thing. But that's so, not the point that I'm making. But, but, the, but the point is, is that we could totally reimagine how we give in, so income support. If we had programs in place, for example, someone I, I spoke to someone last night who spent time in a federal prison, and they said that when they were in prison, they got like a curve. Okay, and they had so much money put on that curve a month that was to to go towards groceries. And it was up to them to figure out how to pay for that or, you know, what they were going to buy. Now, it wasn't money. It was a curve at a grocery store. And I use that in quotations, but they were taught how. Right. They were taught how to make those decisions for themselves. How do I take one hundred dollars? 
and, and feed myself for a week, okay? So perhaps we can look at opportunities like that. Perhaps look at food banks as, you know, take one of the food banks and say, okay, we're going to give you a card. We're going to give you so much money. We need, to, we need to start looking at teaching people who may not have had, um, you know, the, um, uh, the parents' uh, access, to, you know, uh, uh, how do I put this? Children growing up with parents who are not well, not emotionally well, not able to uh, give all the, you know, emo- social, emotional, uh, you know, uh, skills to a child – um, we can't expect them to then grow up and understand how to, you know, uh, live in a community with other people. Uh, this stuff is learned in childhood. I mean, that's why what I, I will always promote uh, good quality, publicly uh, funded early childhood education because preventative measures. Uh, you, you talked about doing your reading. I highly suggest there's a book called Upstream, and it's all about upstream thinking. And the whole parable of, you know, you walk up to a river and you see dead bodies floating down the river. And right now, what our government is doing is they're just pulling the bodies out, okay? But what we need to do is we need to go up that stream and figure out why the bodies are ending up in the water in the first place and try to stop them before they get in there and die. And I heard a teacher said to me yesterday, she said, they are, teachers are literally watching children jump into that river, you know, in, in, a, in a path to their own demise. And they're just standing by without the resources to support them, uh, knowing that they don't have the support at home. And it, it's devastating to so many families right now that are struggling. And so we really need to do better for them. We need government to get their butts out of, you know, their um, social circles and that sort of thing and come down here and start talking to the people who live here and, and see what they're going through. They need to talk to people who can't access mental health services. They need to start understanding that we will not have a workforce to, to rely on if we don't start focusing on better access to services within our communities and focusing on community as our way out of this. I appreciate the time, Robin. I'm late for the break. For Thanks for your patience and the, your perspective here this morning. I appreciate it. Thanks, Hottie. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the recreational food fishery, I think through a tourism operator lens. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to Graham Wood with the Muscle Bed Boat Tours. Good morning, Graham. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? That's kind. How about you? Oh, I don't know. I'm, the weather is absolutely miserable. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to just ignore it. Rain drizzling fog. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to call in about the recreational fishery because um, yesterday on Fisheries Broadcast, um, somebody called in, and, and I didn't mean to call and talk to you other than what I was talking to you before we're at. But, uh, you know, for all these years, um, the government put out a proposal, actually put out a tourism plan in 2020 called Vision 2020 for Tourism and, and to develop authentic tourism and sustainable tourism in the province. And uh, we did a proposal, a number of tour board operators, small tour board operators in the province, uh, did a proposal to DFO to, uh, to allow us to take tourists out uh, outside the 39 days that we had had last number of years 
and retain two fish per day, and we would log data and uh, and send the data back into DFO as an experimental under an experimental fishing license. And uh, and really, we've been trying for I think six or seven years now, trying to get uh, DFO to treat us like the other maritime provinces and and. The other turboard operators in the Maritimes can retain two fish per day up to 20 and uh, under an experimental license. But in their particular clause, uh, our clause, sorry, we, we have to uh, return fish to water after study. And yet in the other Atlantic provinces, they don't have to. They can retain two fish. So we've been asking for this for years. Uh, most of the turboard operators, small turboard operators that, that operate in Newfoundland, uh, in Labrador, uh, you know, really uh, don't have large crowds of people like, you know, Bay Bulls and Twillingate and other areas that would have big ships that can't operate that, that type of stuff in terms of having all the lines overboard and stuff. So uh, we've been asking for this for years, and uh, I talked to Clifford Small about it a month ago in Lewisport here at the Outdoors show. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't heard anything back from him. I've sent a proposal that we had done in 2018 to DFO. Uh, representing 40 tour board operators uh, in the province. And we're hoping that, uh, you know, DFO would have a, have a look at this and, and treat us like the other maritime provinces. And why wouldn't they? Because same thing with even just uh, normal individuals and the uh, recreational food fishery. So what's the thought here? Is that if you get to retain fish, you can extend the experience to an onshore cook-up? Or what's the, as opposed to simply well, fairness across the board, what's the you know, implication? We, we could do that. Or we could allow them just to take the fish back with them. And a lot of tourists don't want to keep the fish, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, but, but there are tourists that we get that, that would like to take a couple of fish, you know, to their trailer or their campsite or whatever. Sure. Uh, and, and cook them up, which is really authentic tourism. I mean, you can do it everywhere else in Canada. I mean, B.C., a recreational license area, you can put a crab pot out and you can catch three salmon a day and so many trout a day. I mean, you know, it's uh, totally different the way we're treated. Even the people on the West Coast of Newfoundland who are in the golf stock area. Uh, can't do that outside the 39 days, right? So, uh, you know, we, we've asked them for even tags, like give us uh, give us some tags. Uh, we'll, we'll log in all the tags. Uh, if we catch a fish and retain a fish, we'll tag the fish, and we'll, uh, and we'll send you the information on the length of the fish, the weight of the fish, the location of catch, and so on for, for ground, all ground fish species. But... You know, uh, again, we just don't seem to get any consideration from Department of Fisheries and Oceans here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah, I mean, there's fact, been... You can't even give us a date when it opens. I mean, here it is the middle of June, like you said, you know, uh, uh, you know, we're still waiting. I get calls from tourists saying, you know, we'd like to book a trip, and we don't know, is there going to be a recreational fishery? And I said, I don't know when there's going to be a recreational fishery, because it never let us know until the last minute. Yeah, I think last year was the 22nd of June before we found out it opened on the 2nd of July. And look, I have some friends who work for DFO and they're consistently and always mad at me and so be it. That's it. But they guarantee you they already know what it's going to be. I mean, there's not, you know, no more meetings have to be held to say that it's 39 days again this year, starting on the 2nd of July. The fall fishery will start this time. The trip limits are this. I mean, they know all of these things already. I just don't know why they keep it to themselves. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's a bureaucratic rationale behind it, but I don't get it. No, I don't get it either. In fact, uh, it should be it should be released uh, what's going to happen with recreational fishery a lot earlier than the middle of June. 
and uh, and uh, absolutely total disregard for tourists and uh, tourism operators. And it's shameful. It's absolutely shameful that we're treated differently than the other maritime provinces in in. Uh, tour board operators retain, be able to retain small amounts of fish for tourists uh, while they're here spending their, their money and supporting our tourism economy. Yeah, and it would also be helpful. Like, if the answer was no, then why? Because, you know, I say this all the time. An answer that you don't like is better than no answer at all. Yep, and, you know, we, like I said, we've done the, we've done the presentation. Uh, we sent it in in 2016, 2018. I sent it in again today and two years ago, you know, and uh, we received zero response from DFO. And, you know, I was dealing with Scott Sims at the time, and I talked to Goody Hutchins, and I talked to other MPs. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, oh, yeah, well, we'll look at it. Well, uh, Clifford Small is on the Fisheries Committee in Ottawa, and, uh, you know, why can't we get something done about this to allow for small towboat operators to be able to retain a small amount of fish outside the 39 days? Because lots of those 39 days, we can't go out. That's right. And, uh, and besides, you know, when we get bad weather here, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's no point in taking tourists out on the water. They don't want to be on the water in bad weather. They want to go in good weather. And if we talk about, even inside of Vision 2020, creating authentic attractions that are uniquely Newfoundland and Labrador, then this would be one for sure. For many people, as they say, it's the reason why we're here in the beginning in the first place. Uh, Graham, anything else quick before I get to the newscast? No, thank you very much, Patty. And, you know, I just hope that uh, people in the province speak out to allow for tourists and, and all the tourists maybe to call in and, and say, you know, we'd like to be able to do these types of experiences, whether it's, it's fishing or whether it's hiking or other things. But usually it seems like that fishing is always uh, so difficult here in Newfoundland. And, and, and I don't know if that's the, if the reason is the FFAW don't want us uh, to be able to retain a small amount of fish. Uh, when, you know, the uh, sentinel fishery is up to a million and a half pounds a year or two million pounds a year now, I think. Yeah, well, I think that's part of it. So there's pushback, but the numbers that we've seen historically, the recreational food fishery adds up to a less than 1% of the caught, caught and retained in the fishery in this province. So yeah. there's that. And I think, I think a lot of people also would like, wouldn't mind having tags so they could go and get their fish, you know, and when they bring it in, it's tagged just like salmon. And uh, then they can go out whenever they, when the weather is good, and they can get their bit of fish they need to get. And and uh, you know, in terms of the cost of living here in Newfoundland and Labrador, I mean, it's uh, you know, it's, uh, it's it's a big, it's a big opportunity for at least us to get some protein uh, and and be able to get it when the days are good and not take chances. Sure, I'll be taking advantage this year again. I can tell you that much. Graham, off to the news. Have a nice weekend. Thank you, Patty. Take care. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Graham Wood with the Muscle Bed Boat Tours. All right, time for the break. When we go back, traveling nurses, something to do with how they operate the walk-in clinics and the Stephenville Airport. Awesome. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for Topsail Paradise, the opposition critic for health and community services. That's Paul Din. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. I just want to touch base on, on a couple of issues if I got the time. Uh, on the IVF and, and nurses, uh, I was disappointed there the week to uh, to read the, the media release from the minister in terms of the, what they're doing on, on IVF treatments or here in the province. Um, 
you're well aware. I mean, I've been I've been advocating for this for well over three years. The uh, Don Wellen with Faces of Fertility had reached out to me, and uh, you know she's been successful. She has a beautiful daughter, Freya, but there's many more out there who have been waiting and waiting. And we know uh, that this government, back in 2016, in their AGM, uh, passed a resolution to look at IVF services for this province. And of course, the premier himself, more than two years ago. Uh, uh, promised the same, and here we are. Uh, when I read read the news, and the minister is telling us that they they've released a, a second RFP to review the province's fertility services, uh, with the expectation that they'll be able to provide more services. I mean, that's that's how far we've come in uh, in seven years. Uh, we're still, you know, you have prospective parents out there who have been waiting, and some of them, I'm sure, hearing that resolution back in 2016 have been anxious to hear you know hear more on this and we know that the five thousand uh, dollar subsidy is just something that uh, many still can't avail of and uh, it's disappointing uh, i found it really disappointing that uh, we're no further ahead in terms of these services this rfp uh, results won't come back till the fall and that's not even for the services that's just to determine if they can offer it and here we are every province in this country offers IVF with exception of PEI and they can drive over Confederation uh, uh, Bridge. So uh, disappointed, very disappointed in this when there's so many prospective uh, parents out there who, you know, their biological clock is ticking and they're waiting and waiting for this. And it's, it's, to me, you almost have to shame government into doing something. And something like this for a province that is in in dire need of uh, a bigger population and keeping our own here, it's disappointing that we're not further along. I mean, the problem, I think, was the first go-around and the RFP was maybe if they had to reward it, they admitted that it wasn't on point, didn't give enough time for people to respond because it's a complex issue requiring lots of due diligence and, you know, attending to the matters that you can afford and you understand so if we had to go back to the well i guess that's the good news but it's unfortunate we had to do it twice yeah no no doubt uh you you go back and make sure it's right but but you know how much time has this government had to get this right and you know there's some expertise here in the province you know there's a couple of doctors who have put in proposals over the last number of years you know, it's just it's just disheartening. It has to be disheartening for those families out there or those prospective families who who uh, see this as another delay. Fair enough. You know. Anyway, the other issue I wanted to touch base on is, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about travel nurses, and uh, you know, yes, they're needed. You know, I suspect many of our nurses probably won't get holidays unless there's some travel nurses utilized here. But related to that is our own trying to get jobs here. Uh, more recently, just in the last couple of weeks, I have a young, uh, well, their mother is after calling me. Her daughter completed uh, nursing in uh, Winnipeg, graduated last week or the week before, as a psychiatric nurse. Cannot get a job here. Cannot get a job in this province. And, you know, you talk about collaborative care clinics and we talk about our mental health issues and the like and cannot get a psychiatric uh, nursing job here. Being told, well, we don't recognize psychiatric nurses. I mean, to me, to me, that's terrible. I have another nurse out in uh, Central. She worked away, worked here for eight, eight, nine years, went away, went abroad, came back and wanted to go to work. And was told, well, no, you, you're going to have to do a refresher and, and, and the like, at her own cost, no less, which she started doing. 
And then since doing that, of course, uh, government announced in, in early June, uh, you know, about reducing the administrative delay for uh, our foreign nurses and creating pathways for them to come here and reducing the cost for applicants and, and so on, and, and reducing the time to complete their education and assessments by allowing them to work under someone and be assessed and so on. So this nurse uh, reached out and she was, she was able to do that. They said, oh, yeah, you were qualified, but you need a job. <laughs> you know, she's after applying for umpteen jobs in Central while, while there's travel nurses working there and she cannot get a job, this is what we're dealing with. And I don't understand it. When, when our own uh, want to come home, want to work here, and we're, we're not doing more to keep them here, to give them a job, you know, yes, travel nurses, you need them. But she's applying for a job in Central, and you have uh, multiple travel nurses working there. You have positions that are opening, and you can't get a look in. It's it's truly amazing. And, Patty, I can go further. I mean, I, I spoke to two young doctors. Uh, I was in Halifax the weekend. I spoke to two young doctors from here, and uh, they finish up in a couple of months' time. Six months ago, they have reached out, two of them. There are a couple. I suspect they'll be married eventually. Uh, two of them reached out to the Atlantic provinces uh, about six months ago. Within 72 hours, they said they had responses from all the provinces, with the exception of, Newfoundland and Labrador. In fact, they're still waiting. So we have a recruitment office. We have a person responsible for recruitment, and these things are still happening. I, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. I don't think anyone does. If government acknowledges and understands that there is a problem, shortage or otherwise, and there's people that are applying for jobs that can't get a job or even a response then how does that even work? Are people getting lost in the shuffle? Is it disconnected silos? Because, you know, you think this would be political victory. Forget a victory for the healthcare system and yeah. individuals. This is also a political victory. So I don't know why they don't take the layup and take the easy win. It, uh, Paul, appreciate the time. Last word to you before I have to go. No, it's look, we, we have to do better. If there's someone who wants to come home and is able and qualified, we need to make it work. We need to make it work. And uh, there's no other way around it, right? You know, we need to travel nurses, no doubt, allow, allow our uh, overworked healthcare workers to, to get some time off. But if there's people wanting to come home, let's do it. Especially when we had to come home with your incentive specifically well, designed. Let me tell you, that nurse I was ta talking about that came home to work her, she's fighting to try and get that incentive. <laughs> You know, it's amazing. But anyway, look, I wanted to put it on the books because I know it's it's a hot topic. And in the meantime, look, you have a great Father's Day. Same to you. Thanks All for this, best. Paul. All yep. the best. Bye-bye. All right, Paul, do remember for Tops of Paradise. Uh, fun fact sent along by a listener. The first class from the Cabot Institute of Early Childhood, uh, Early Childhood Educators graduated today, this date in history, 1988. 35 years and the conversation hasn't changed much. Burnout is high, and less than half in the picture, send along a picture of the graduating class, half in the picture continued to work in the field in the past 15 years. Amazing. Let's take our final break of the morning and the week. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Dave, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Thank you very much for taking my call. No problem. I'm calling on behalf of the uh, Steve Airport Citizens Action Committee. I don't know if you've heard tell of us before or not. I have, yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, we organized this group uh, years ago to keep the airport open and work to ensure that we would continue to, pro to provide air services to the region. 
but at the last three years, it's been a very concerned to us is what's happening here. Um, for the last three years, we've been watching and anticipating the uh, potential uh, sale of the airport to Mr. Diamond. And we are uh, very concerned about, about the sale. It appears uh, deadline after deadline has passed, and many promises have been made. Onset has been fulfilled. We all have duties and obligations to be sure that we act in the best interest of the town and enter into deals and agreements that will benefit majority of the citizens. Ultimately, we want to be sure that our airport remains open. But, Patty, uh, there's a lot of things that people might not know about. Like, when the base was turned over to the government, that was to the federal government and to the Newfoundland government, uh, the airport had a 99-year lease on it. And it was not it was not supposed to let go. It was supposed to remain as a 99-year lease in case of war that the Americans would come back and take control of the airport. And in further years, that they also had agreement that the shuttle, the space shuttle, would be allowed to come and land at the airport. So... Um, uh, as a group, we, we uh, took all this in consideration, and we tried to, uh, to try to keep the airport open. So we, uh, as, a, as a group of about 10 people, uh, we went out and uh, we uh, asked the people in the community if there was some way that they would help, and we raised some money, and the... the the airport wasn't being taken care of very well, and uh, it was getting depleted, and the uh, restaurant had closed, so the, the roof was leaking, and uh, our group got together, and we went out, and we, we collected money from the area. Some even money came from Fort Vermont, and we got enough money to repair the roof for the restaurant, and we got the restaurant open, and... Uh, at a tune of $12,000 that was collected from the people in the area. And we got the restaurant open and it's still open yet today. And uh, the, we had a place there. It was a place there for the uh, pilots to come in. It was a lounge for them. It was depleted. And we cleaned it, painted it, and we carpeted it. And we done a lot more work in there for them. And uh, Patty, as a group, uh, we feel that uh, no deal should be given to anybody uh, for seven for seven dollars, and uh, you know it's a it's a legal deal. It's not right. But if the Diamond Group, I mean, I have no idea if this is ever going to happen. But if this is not a successful transaction, it might spell the end for the Stephenville Airport, won't it? Because I mean, government says it won't extend a line of credit any further. The town has said they're not going to afford any more money to the to the airport. So this might be the end of the road if this is not successful. Isn't that the way to read this, Dave? Well, see, uh, you know what we done as a, as a group of ten or twelve people, right? You know, we, we went out and done this. Now, look, 
the town of Stevemore, if if they go into fundraising, right, and you got the business people of Stevemore, and you got you know you got the stack board, and if they put some effort into it, you know what you know what you're looking at. You're looking at an airport that's worth six hundred and fifty million dollars. That's a lot of money, and there's airports all over Canada. Nobody owns them; they're all leased. And if they go out, sack air, uh, uh, membership, uh, go out and see if they could lease it. But there's nothing done in Steamboat. You don't hear anything from the town. All you hear about is somebody coming in with no money. And they're going to make a sale. Now, Patty, look, uh, all he's doing here right now is trying to find enough money to pay off some of the debt at the airport and take that airport over. Now, what happens down the road if it don't? If he wants to take it and change it and sell it off to some, for something else, what happens to the airport? Well, I mean, you have to, you can address those types of concerns in the contracts, but uh, I get that point. But I mean, certainly, if you're if it's all about having an operational airport, then the contract can reflect exactly that. Dave, if I I'll give you one more second to uh, offer whatever you like before I sneak out one more last call for the week. Okay. Uh, well, look. Uh, I'm 83 years old. I grew up around the airport, right? And uh, on our group, we're all old people. Uh, we know the value of the airport. And um, if there was somebody came here, like Mr. Ridgely, with money, and would come over and take that airport over and make it viable, and we could see planes coming in and out of here, and, and you know... It, it would look good for our community, but at the at the present time, there's a man comes in here with no money, and he's trying to take an airport over that's worth six hundred and fifty million dollars. Where's our future, Patty? Where do we go? I don't know. It's a big question, nor do I know about that uh, valuation of $650 million. But uh, I appreciate the time, Dave. I'm going to give one more caller a chance here this morning, but you take care and stay in touch. Yeah, well, thank you very much for taking my call. My pleasure. Take care. All right. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's do exactly that. Line one, Jesse, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for finding the time. Happy to do it. I'm calling regarding the Walsh Humvee Memorial. I guess you remember me discussing that with you in the past? I do, and as I mentioned in the past, I knew Billy Humvee, and to know that three Walsh boys were lost that day, it's still heartbreaking. Yeah, it was a sad day back in 2016, but uh, we decided that we're going to put together a monument for them, considering that there was two of them with no headstones because they were never found. And uh, this Sunday at uh, 5 p.m. at our lookout here just below the Golden Vista on Shea Heights, we're actually going to unveil that marble bench with uh, monuments to the boys fantastic it took a lot of time and effort and fundraising so good on everyone involved you want to give a few shout outs to people who helped well to be quite honest with you it was a community effort uh, in six weeks that money was raised so you know the city of st john's of course don't donating the land and, and agreeing to do the maintenance on this in the future uh, family memorials of course for for putting together and the family for getting together and you know, putting together a, a, a fantastic monument that's going to be a great part of our community. So. And I'm sure it'll be not only well-received, and it might indeed bring up some very difficult memories, but uh, I'm really pleased that this is coming to pass. So Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m., right there on the lookout, uh, I'm sure the entire community will come out. And I'm glad it's happening, Jesse. Thanks for this this morning. And thanks for finding the time. My pleasure. Good luck with it. 
All the best. You too, Jesse. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, four boys gone. Quick as that. 2016. TSA, the Transportation Safety Bureau said, of course, or the board, it was adverse conditions. There's a lot to that story. Sad stuff. All right, good show today. Good show all week. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Happy Father's Day to you, lads, and those of you playing the role as dad. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.